Well, good morning. Welcome to another uh, meeting of the Corona Committee, the 76th meeting. Today's title is Columbus Rotten Eggs. We'll get back to it later. This committee was established more than a year ago um, with the objective of taking a closer look at the virus uh, occurrence and uh, the measures, the countermeasures taken. Uh, I'm very lucky to be here today um, because I um, suffered lumbago and I can only work today because I had a very skillful physio, physiotherapist. So I hope I can stick it out all day long. Um, if I were to um, suffer pain, I might stop uh, in mid um, session, but for the moment it works. Now, uh, Columbus egg um, is of course the um, image, the metaphor for a uh, seemingly unsolvable problem. And we are being presented with ever new solutions for the so-called pandemic. And we can see that it's a very rotten egg because people um, wind up with other problems and the solution isn't all that it promises to be. And that is the way with many things we're dealing with today. And we'll take a closer look at many of those rotten eggs today. Now at the very beginning, we have Matthew Arendt here again. He's a journalist, a um, historian, and he also founded the Canadian Patriot Review uh, magazine. We had him with us twice already, and today he'll speak about the topic of astroturfing, i.e. the um, creation of so-called grassroots movements that are actually created by agents and uh, are infiltrated from uh, the very beginning. Uh, we know that with self-help groups in the pharmaceutical uh, sector, for instance, people who get together there uh, are sometimes not genuine, which means that sometimes alternative treatments or additional treatments that people could choose that they are um, blocked by those people in uh, active in the self-help groups. I know that from a uh, acquaintance of mine who was in an Alzheimer self-help group when all of the alternative treatments that can be used, acupuncture, etc., was systematically talked down by other people, particularly decision-makers within this group. So I um, suspect that it was such an astroturfing uh, thing to uh, counteract this kind of question. At the end, we're going to show a little video on that, three little videos, uh, one of them being a talk of a member of the EU Parliament. There have been a number of people awakened um, saying uh, the, we're going too far, we're not afraid of being uh, vi having the virus, but the national kings uh, not wanting to give up their power again and want to continue. And we have the talk of a German member of the EU Parliament, Christina Andersen. We do know that um, probably are going to get a little shitstorm in that because she is part a member of the AFD as well. But we have said that we do talk to everyone, especially if these topics are concerned in which we are working in the same direction. So it doesn't mean we agree to the party or its idea. 
years, but this speech, which we've seen as a video before, matches to what we have found so far, and that's why we play it. And uh, that is why we think other politicians and other parties may be encouraged to do so as well. After that, in order to see as well, um, as this um, uh, you member of the parliament came, um, we had um, uh, Matthew Andrews from the Labour Party in Victoria. They have let the cat out of the sack saying everybody vaccinated every six months. If you don't do that, you're not vaccinated with the respective issue. And another text, another clip by Cheryl Atkinson. A genius person as uh, 10 minutes on astroturfing and you really find out what's going on and we are going to talk about this topic with Matthew Arrett as well right now before that. Good morning Matthew. Well, it's in the wee hours of the morning so uh, here in Montreal it's five o'clock and I'll uh, I'll try my best to be as cogent as humanly possible. I'm not used to waking up this early, but I'll, <laughs> I'll hopefully not put your, uh, your viewers to sleep. Um, I know that we had uh, discussed the idea of astroturfing, and I will briefly touch upon that a little bit um, indirectly, but um, that won't be necessarily the focus of um, my brief presentation today. And mm -hmm. since we began a little bit late, let me just quickly ask, do we, uh, will I be speaking for 60 minutes or should I cut it down no, no, don't uh, do take your time and tell it like it is. Don't uh, take any any unnecessary precautions. I know that viewers are really happy that you're with us and everybody wants to hear what you have to say. Unabridged. Okay. <laughs> All right, unabridged. So I, I think that the um, well, I'll do a little bit of a screen share here uh, before I, I proceed. Um, here we are. So I, I arranged a few thoughts today because we are on the verge of a major conference which is being heralded as the most important conference for climate change in the world that will be a two week long event with 25,000 delegates coming to the UK, to Scotland, uh, essentially to attempt, and I don't think this is going to work, but to attempt to essentially reset society and create the foundations for a new set of values which is supposedly going to be brought online, um, perhaps after a period of chaos, um, whereby the new set of values that will emerge, we are told, will be drastically different from anything that we have ever known in the, in the age of abundance that is long gone, they say. And we're constantly being told that we have to prepare for a new age of scarcity, of living with less, um, and just tightening our belts. Meanwhile, but not for everybody, there are some who as we've seen from the golden collar class who uh, frequent Davos, that some will supposedly be the owners of the things that everyone else will have the privilege of renting, renting from or provided their behavior is uh, acceptable to the new standards. Um, we are today going through an, a, a profound shift. That is very true. We are at the end of a system which we could see now is going through turbulence. The banking system is in a situation where it's a high, it's basically not a banking system anymore in the West. We have become one big speculative bubble. Most of it is, is fictitious capital 
and we discussed this in my last um, opportunity to speak to your your audience. Mm -hmm. um, the underlying debt, which is sustaining these bubbles, these this fictitious capital, is itself chimerical. It will never be paid. It cannot be paid. It is waiting for a chain reaction set of defaults. Um, <clears throat> the the thing which is most important amongst all of this, which I want to go through in the course of three sections in this short presentation, will be um, the the quality of ideas that has brought us to the crisis. Because human beings, and this is, I'm going to say this now, and I'm going to say this at the end, the nature of human beings, the, what are we? It, this is what everything boils down to in terms of trying to understand geopolitics, history, trying to problem solve or see the pathways out of a storm. You have to realize that everything boils down to the nature of human beings. And are we a creature whose species character is defined by material circumstances, um, genetic, our, our environment, for example, or material things? Um, is that really what limits us limits us as as a as a human species because that is certainly what limits most other species that we know of in the biosphere or do we have something additional on top of those material conditions do we have a set of metaphysical things known as ideas ideas that are right or wrong and and free will to to abide by good ideas and reject bad ideas because if we tolerate bad ideas uh for too long there are, there are consequences that must be paid. Um, and if that means a system collapses, then we should have learned, we should have learned while we had time. And, and I think we still do have time. So <clears throat> what are some of the bad ideas? I'm gonna go through this, like I said, in three sections. The first part will be a brief um, overview of some of the, the recent um, political strategic uh, circumstances of our, of our age. The second will be some historical back, backdrop uh, featuring an insight into the governing ideas uh, going back from the 1940s until the present. And then we're gonna look at um, some science, specifically what has, been, what has been kept from us as far as scientific method is concerned in the recent four, several decades as a, a, a poor creature, a creature, a poor element on the periodic table has been very much demonized. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that element is, or that molecule is carbon dioxide, uh, which is not a pollutant, it's not a, a dangerous thing. And it is very, very similar to the problems of uh, people who believe in, in COVID-19 as the cause of the great upcoming supposed pandemic that could destroy everybody unless we radically modify our global behavior. So just to begin, a quote that caught me from a book from 1956, How to Lie with Statistics, is uh is quite good a well-wrapped statistic is better than hitler's big lie it misleads yet it cannot be pinned on you this is a uh, a very important lesson to keep in mind in this book how to lie with statistics keep in mind is also amongst one of bill gates's favorite books that he has put on his recommended reading list um what is cop 26 so as i said this is something that will begin uh, very shortly until november 12th and the, the aims of it are very simple. It is being governed by a fellow Canadian. I'm very sorry that we've, we've presented him to the world uh, from Canada uh, named Mark Carney, who has been held responsible for managing much of this. He's a high level technocrat, as many people know, a, an investment banker from Goldman Sachs who rose to become the governor of the Bank of Canada for a period, and then the governor of the Bank of England, um, as well as the head of the Financial Stability Board right after Mario Draghi had filled the post. 
where he regulated and managed international derivatives. He managed the imp implementation of a global bail-in regime to prepare for stealing people or confiscating people's savings under the conditions of a um, an economic meltdown. And he's now been in charge of managing COP26. So what are the objectives and aims of COP26? I've alluded to it already, but essentially in short form, lower the CO2 emissions to net zero by 2050, supposedly to keep temperatures 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. All right, that's just, that's what they're saying. That's what they wanna do, supposedly because those temperature changes are tied to carbon dioxide made by human beings. That's the assertion. We're gonna evaluate whether that's true or not very shortly. Um, CO2 uh, reduction targets from every nation have to be made legally binding and enforceable by new global uh, bodies that have to be brought online that have more power than sovereign nation states. The creation of a global carbon market, which is what Carney has been spearheading for a number of years now, which is uh, Article 6 of the Paris Accords that never really went through because many nations, you know, they realize that if they go along with this, they're going to be sacrificed and uh, there will be mass death. So this has been something that has faced a lot of resistance and as well a, a vastly expanded set of conservation areas of the world. The Congo River Basin area is a major one. Um, and the idea is to expand what already exists to make areas completely um, impossible to develop with hydroelectric dams or water management systems or anything that, that disturbs the supposedly mathematical equilibrium, the homeostasis of ecosystems, which we, which computer models that we use demand exist. Now that might not necessarily be true. There might not be any such homeostasis that actually exists, even though the computer models that think for us all demand it because that's what computer models, they're fundamentally based upon certain binary uh, mathematical systems of equations that are all premised upon balance. Um, you don't seem to see that in the physical space time of nature where evolution of life uh, is constantly changing and moving in a dy very dynamic way. Additionally, Carney wants to get $135 trillion of investment into renewable energy, wind and solar, primarily over 30 years. Um, one of the things that Carney has said recently, in 2019, um, was, at, this was a major banking conference where he said that climate disclosures uh, must become comprehensive, climate risk management must be transformed, and sustainable investment must go mainstream. Uh, he then took on a more threatening tone, saying any the firms that anticipate these developments will be rewarded handsomely. Those that don't will cease to exist. Other bankers at the similar conference where he spoke uh, included people like Larry Fink and others from BlackRock who had called for a financial regime change. This is right before COVID was sprung onto the world. Um, the idea of, and what Carney has been really pushing with many of these uh, financiers from JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, many of the, the banks that are part of the Green uh, Climate Compact, which is essentially an agreement that we will no longer as bankers fund or provide loans to dirty companies that uh, create CO2. Um, and that also includes specifically targeting of Africa and, and the developing sector that desperately needs to use the coal and other oil and resources under their soil for their development to end hunger and end poverty, but they're being told that they're not going to be allowed because the greater threat is against nature. And if you develop your people, it means you're gonna hurt nature. So we have to withhold funding or at least punish you by imposing prohibitively large um, 
interest rates on loans that you will make things very financially impossible to develop. So to go back in time a little bit here, I, I, I want to just pick up where we left off in a previous uh, segment, um, where, which dealt with the, the role of things like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Macy Foundation, the British Eugenics Society in spreading and sponsoring a science of eugenics from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, as well as the banks and others that, uh, that funded these organizations that also funded fascism as a political economy designed to enforce this new type of science of population control, which fortunately was put down um, when Hitler was defeated. But keep in mind from, as we've discussed prior, uh, prior, these eugenics laws, the idea of defining human beings kind of like you would define um, horses or other forms of cattle monetarily, as well as based upon the idea of selective breeding, euthanizing or sterilizing the unfit, was all based upon a certain type of um, extrapolation of trends. You, you take statistical data sets of somebody's family, you extrapolate your grandparents, great-grandparents who tended to maybe, maybe have a low IQ, ignore their, their economic circumstances for, for, the, for the minute, and just extrapolate the trends into the future as your children, great-grandchildren that don't even exist yet are presumed to most likely be also uh, fated with low IQ or criminality or whatever other variable you're looking at as a eugenicist. And based upon those statistical probabilities, one will justify the uh, sterilization of people or euthanize, euthanizing of people. Uh, this was done in all over the United States. It was done across Europe and Britain. It was especially done in, in Germany, as we know. Um, but those who, prom who promoted Hitler, who promoted eugenics, were never punished in Nuremberg. And one of the key figures who plays a very big role in the growth, the cancerous growth of this, this terrible set of ideas that shaped so much of our past 70 years is a figure named Sir Julian Huxley. Um, Julian Huxley was the, the founder and first director general of UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Science and Cultural Organization. I'm going to say a few things about this, this trajectory of ideas because it plays right back to understanding where does COP26 come from? Where does this false set of ideas come from that justify us, essentially human beings, as something which is overpopulated, that we have to manage or reduce the impact of human beings on the earth by reducing or putting values on carbon footprint reduction. So rather than putting economic behavior and practice on increasing productivity as it once was the case years ago. Instead, Carney and others of this uh, Davos click group who are managing the Great Reset, they want to put the new set of values on how much you can reduce the means of sustaining human life. The more you can reduce human life, the more money you can make. Um, this is a completely absurd and unscientific and immoral, most important uh, set of ideas. But again, it, it gets its origins in this moment. So in the UNESCO manifesto, its purpose and philosophy, which people can read online, I picked two quotes. One is the first one where Julian, who keep in mind is also eugenicist, says that political unification and some sort of world government will be required, even though any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible. It will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable. In short, Hitler made eugenics look very bad for the world and he set our plans back. 
So how do we repackage eugenics under a new uh, veneer, a new costume, so that people who cannot possibly think of doing eugenics anymore, which he says is the queen of all sciences, um, <laughs> the thing that must guide every other scientific policy is eugenics, the science of control of people. Um, how do we repackage that to make it become thinkable, make it acceptable? In another um, quote in that same document, he says clearly, the moral of, for UNESCO is clear. The task laid upon it of promoting peace and security can never be wholly realized through the means assigned to it, to it, education, science, and culture. It must envision, envision some form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise, as the only certain means of avoiding war in its educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for a world political unity and familiarize all people with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization. This is directly at the manifesto of UNESCO, which went on to have a profound impact on shaping global cultural policy, especially amongst the West, as well as educational policy, along with the OECD in the 1950s throughout the Cold War. Um, very important concepts because this, again, these ideas that are metaphysical shaped not for the better, but for the worse, are potential as a species. So what did what clues do we have for how the thinkable became thinkable in Huxley's mind? What did he do? Well, to investigate this, we can make a point that he did found UNESCO, and, and I made that point. He was also the head of the... Um, the Union for the Conservation of Nature, which was the world's first environmental conservation movement in 1947. Um, sorry, it's going a little slow. He co-founds a new study, a new, a new philosophy called transhumanism, along with Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the uh, so-called priest, um, <clears throat> based on an idea of merging human beings with machinery and other things at some imaginary singularity, or as Chardin says, omega point in the future, whereby the masterclass, the ubermenschen, will take control of the means of natural selection and a new species will be created. This is, I think, very inspired in, by the work of his brother, Aldous Huxley, in Brave New World. Uh, people like uh, Ray Kurzweil, the Google, C, uh, Google lead engineer, uh, is a big fan of this and carried this forward in the form of his singularity theory, as, as is uh, Tayal de Shah. Um, Yuval Harari, the other World Economic Forum thinker. He was also the president of the British Eugenic Society um, from 1958 to 1962, and its vice president earlier, at the same time that he created the World Wildlife Fund for Nature with Prince Philip and Prince, I said Prince Charles here by accident, Prince Philip and Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands. Bernhardt had just recently created the Bilderberger uh, Group in 1955 to coordinate essentially, as, as Huxley pointed out, disso the dissolution of nation states and the creation of new global structures of control that essentially reinstated the powers of the British Empire under a new mutated form. And keep in mind as well, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, this, this seems like a nice thing on the surface. Of course, we want a pure world. We want a clean world. We don't want pollution in our oceans. Of course, that's true. But what this organization did, you got to keep in mind, what's happening is you have Enrico Mattei at this time, you got Dag Hammarskjöld, who's fighting imperialism. You've got leading statesmen like John F. Kennedy rising and fighting for the development of Africa and South America, along with people like Charles de Gaulle, um, who are working to develop 
large-scale infrastructure to liberate people so that every nation that was colonized can stand on its own two feet by developing large-scale infrastructure development and full-spectrum economics. That was the momentum of, of humanism, moral humanism that was shaping the world. And the idea was formally that human beings had to be liberated from empire. And we would do that through the belief in scientific and technological progress that would allow us to overcome the limits to growth. And in that world, that, that old ethic that we've since seen dis dissipate badly over the last decades, the idea was that people are good, babies are good. You don't, you don't want more babies just to have more babies, but you, you realize that every baby has a soul. Every baby has a potential mind to be developed if you give it the opportunity and the inspiration and thus every baby can be a Mozart, a Beethoven, a, a Max Planck, whatever, and make discoveries so that the limits of nature would, that, that are holding human beings back can always be transcended with new discoveries of principles of the universe. That is something that materialists who are every imperialist or slave owner is effectively a materialist. They don't believe that um, because they're control freaks. They believe what, what exists now is all that can ever be and that must be thus controlled to be used for dividing and conquering the weaker on the part of the stronger. So when they look at human growth, they don't say, they, an imperialist doesn't see what I saw. They don't see that the purpose of, of, of nation states or science is to liberate people from want or starvation or the effects of empire. They rather saw, especially with the World Wildlife Fund and the transformation of the ethical base of society in the, in the 60s, which obviously happened over the dead bodies of many great leaders, including Mattei uh, of Italy, as well as uh, Lumumba and JFK and Bobby Kennedy. But what they see is a cancer. So this is what many people see these days who have been cynically weaned off of our modern education system and, and you know, movies that paint human beings in a very cynical, parasitical way, very corrupt way. So they see population growth and they just see a quantity of cells of a cancer growing over, over Gaia, destroying nature. This is unhealthy because underlying this quantitative growth, we have also qualities. The, qual the, quanti the ability to live a longer life is, is, is attained as well. You know, where our average life expectancy is very different today than it was 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Um, so the, the ability, the quality of life is also being changed here as well as quantity when you're applying the, the fruits of thought of good ideas into the social organization of that system. This is again, what people who became very famous in the 1960s, like Paul Ehrlich, um, a very influential, um, zoologist, biologist wrote a book called The Population Bomb, which made him a celebrity, where he said that a cancer is an uncontrolled multiplication of cells. The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people. We must shift our efforts from the treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. The operation will demand many apparently brutal and heartless decisions. This is cold hearted. Um, basically, he is one of the many who were part of the movement that revived the theories of Malthus, Thomas Malthus, who we're going to see a little something about. Um, but again, are, is, it's a good question. Are human beings just a cancer, right? How do you prove that that's truly wrong? There's a long quote. I had to pull it out. It's just so important. But it's one of John Holdren, uh, one of all Ehrlich's students, John Holdren, who co-wrote a book with Ehrlich called Eco-Science population, the environment uh, in 1977. It's a big book. 
And in the book, um, sorry, there's a little uh, problem here where something's blocking what I'm seeing. One second, Matthew. Is that the yes. same Paul Ehrlich whose uh, name is uh, now the one that describes our Paul Ehrlich Institute here in Germany? Or is that someone I, else? I don't know. You know, there, there's a couple of Paul Ehrlichs and I don't know about the one in Germany. I hope not. Okay. But uh, there he, there's his student, his prodigy, John Holdren, with uh, Barack Obama. John Holdren was the United States science czar under Obama. And in this 1977 behemoth of a book, John Holdren writes... It's not the same person. I just checked it. No? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Perhaps those agencies combined with UNEP... Um, that's the United Nations Environmental Protection Agency and the United Nations Population Agencies, which had just recently been controlled. This, this is me talking now by Maury Strong, um, might eventually be developed into a planetary regime, sort of an international super agency for population resources and environment. Such a comprehensive planetary regime could control the development, administration, conservation and distribution of all natural resources, renewable or non-renewable, at least insofar as international implications exist. Thus, the regime could have the power to control pop pollution, not only in the atmosphere and oceans, but also in such freshwater bodies as rivers and lakes that cross international boundaries or that discharge into oceans. The regime might also be a logical central agency for regulating all international trade, perhaps including assistance from developed countries to lower developed countries, and including all food on the international market. The planetary regime might be given responsibility for determining the optimum population for the world and for each region and for arbitrating various countries' shares within their regional limits. Control of population size might remain the responsibility of each government, but the regime would have some power to enforce the agreed upon limits. And that is bone chilling, considering again, the role and career of John Holdren, who upon becoming science czar of the U USA may wasted no time in advancing the green agenda in ways that were horrific, shutting down um, investments in nuclear science, nuclear fusion. Um, the space program got it's some of its worst hits under Holdren and things like Solyndra, the uh, you know energy farm boondockles got massive government subsidies out of the wazoo. Science was really handicapped under this guy. And one of his closest friends is the current science czar named Eric Lander, who is a Rhodes Scholar in charge of formerly the, the Human Genome Project and is running US science policy right now. Um, so just keep that in mind that this, this is a coterie of uh, very, very sick minds, very misanthropic minds who really, really are governed by a, a hate of something fundamental within the human condition. And I mentioned Malthus, sorry, it's uh, the slide isn't, oh, there it is. So just quickly, the, the Neo-Malthusian revival, as it was called, was based upon the reactivation of, of an idea of Malthus, which was on the left here, that's the image of Malthus's mathematical theory of population, which became the governing um, science of the British East India Company for hundreds of years and how they managed I Ireland, India, Africa, everywhere, was the idea that population always grows faster than food and resources. And so you could always predict relatively a moment where the population will over 
over exceed food production and war, famine, other things will be the natural consequence. And thus the scientific rulers of the British empire must always use this mathematical formula to control populations, to keep populations low. And Malthus even advises, you know, killing babies to make room for new people, utilizing the gifts of famine, um, disent don't encourage uh, hospitals for the poor, encourage wars if need be to help the, do the things that nature wants to do anyway. It's absolutely sick. And I think that the experience of the, the 100 or 200 years after Malthus dies, uh, or after he writes this book in 1799, uh, demonstrates that he was wrong. He thought that the world population could go no higher than 1 billion. Um, Holdren as well believed that it would uh, cap off at the year 2000, where we'd go into complete collapse. Um, obviously, there's something else that they're not willing to look at within us that allows us to break their, their miserable predictions. Um, this is the image from the Limits to Growth book from 1972, sponsored by the Club of Rome, which essentially, you know, <laughs> said, okay, now computer modeling, we could input a few variables, uh, pollution, technology, we'll just call those variables, population, death, births, resources, and then just chart out, we'll make linear extrapolations and see where they all break down. And as you can see from the limits to growth uh, predictions, it was the year 2000 once again, where uh, deaths just massively increase, pollution grows. And of course it makes no, no space whatsoever for creative discoveries. That doesn't exist because creative discoveries are non-linear. You cannot chart them in a binary one and zero computing machine. It can't work that way. The human mind is not limited to that, but they refuse to believe it. But that doesn't stop them from a Pygmalion effect. So once these Malthusians took control increasingly of Western nations, in the US it took the form of the Trilateral Commission, people like Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, David Rockefeller, who were leaders of the Trilateral Commission that took over in the 1970s, made sure that their predictions of the computer models that the reality conformed to the, to the model, right? <laughs> you did, they didn't make their models conform to reality. They made reality conform to, to the models. So how did they do that? Well, if you look at the actual, um, sorry the, the, for the low resolution, but if you look at the predicted pathways for fusion development, that's something which was predicted to be much, much more, we should have already had this for many years as a commercially viable process. It required that the scientists be given the means to build expensive prototypes to test their ideas. There's many different pathways to fusion. It's not just, you don't have to just put all your, your eggs in the, in the eater basket. Um, that was all cut down so that nobody could build their, their designs and test them. And that was always known that it was called the fusion never level of 1968. We're far below that today. And we've, we've been below that since the seventies. Um, <clears throat> another place, um, the highest point of per capita GDP as far as, as far as the percentage of the federal budget invested in space, which was once the driver of the entire economy, internet, GPS, cell phones, um, medical technologies, EKGs, so much of it came out of the drive for the space race as a crash program. That maximized, that, the maximum moment was 1965 and every year since it's been cut down even after we went to the moon. And by 1973, the Apollo missions were canceled and the budget was kept under 1%, far under 1% for the next four decades. 
And all large-scale planning goals had all dwindled away, had all been shut down. Um, we could look at any number of variables, including infrastructure investments collapsing, um, the outsourcing of industries, manufacturing that we need to have. If, if you're going to be a sovereign nation, you have to have industries. That was shut down. So, okay, why is this being done? One of the key culprits and that has been demonized in all of this process is a uh, is carbon dioxide. And the whole house of cards crumbles. I remember, you know, Kerry Mulis, the person who invented uh, uh, the PCR test, had once made a point. He tried to find who was it who made the scientific study that proved that, and I'm, I'm, this, I'm not going to go on this in this presentation, but it was a good example, that proved that HIV virus that's found in many, many people causes AIDS. And he looked for the study. He spent years looking for the, what was the study that, that made that connection because we were all shaping a $100 billion dollar uh, industry around this assumption that this existed. And he could, he realized that it didn't exist. Nobody ever made, it was just an asserted claim, but everyone had been acting as if that were true. And as a consequence, things like, uh, you know, ref reformed uh, chemotherapy drugs were, were being given to people who were testing HIV positive, which were shutting down their immune system. And they were being kept on these um, former chemotherapy drugs. Um, for, for a very long time, which was itself, as all evidence seems to indicate, what was actually causing the death rates. That was what was causing the problem. It wasn't the actual HIV itself. And that continues to be a problem across Africa today. Um, the same thing for COVID, right? If you're thinking, well, mm -hmm. we're told that there's this statistical correlation between this thing called COVID and these mass deaths that were being, uh, that that being pummeled with. Four million people all died of COVID. And, and so these questionable data sets are being used and extrapolated into the future so that we modify our behavior and then take on therapies as a solution, which seem to actually be the things that are breaking down our immune system, potentially resulting in what could become another AIDS pandemic if these, this is actually true, that the, uh, the gene therapies and other things are actually causing our immune systems to shut down, uh, in, you know, and how much worse is that going to get per booster shot? So back to CO2, the, if this is not tied to temperature, if there is no relationship between CO2 and temperature, the entire house of cards comes crumbling down. The entire basis for COP26 falls apart because CO2, frankly, has been an integral part for the past 200 years of the industrial economy that we've been under, under, you know, that's a fact of life. So if you sustain life by industry, then if you, if you tell people to get rid of industry, they won't do it. That will result in their children dying. The sleight of hand here has been find one of the, the contingent byproducts of industrial output, agro-industrial output, demonize that, and then people won't realize what's happening to them. Keep in mind as well, the U.S. itself has lost 17% of its uh, uh, residential electricity, uh, sorry, its per capita electricity in only 10 years, 17%. Um, and it's much worse in many other countries. How did so that the first happen? thing, how did that happen? That has been by just the shutdown of coal plants, mm -hmm. of other forms of more reliable forms of energy, natural gas plants and other things. Because mostly coal plants have been massively shut down in the U.S. Um, and replaced with very un unreliable wind and solar farms, which, I mean, oftentimes are just not very performative. Um, they give you maybe 25% of their capacity. 
um, 25 to maybe 30% if you're lucky, but then when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, as the case is in uh, Britain right now, which is 25% reliant upon windmills, uh, it f fell down to less than 1% capacity. Um, very little storage and backup planning was made as well. So I, I, either this was just insanely incompetent or criminally, I, I, I wouldn't say criminally neg negligent, I would say criminal yeah. as far as intentional. I don't think uh, there is any negligence in this. No, I don't think so either. Mm. Um, you have to try very hard to be this stupid. And I don't think these people are really have, there are a lot of stupid people, but I think the ones shaping this policy know exactly what the effects are mm -hmm. um, of this perfect storm. That's even, we see this very much, especially in Europe uh, with the energy crisis today. Um, so let me go through a few things here just to vindicate carbon dioxide, okay? Because I, I want people to really know this. The first thing, carbon dioxide, I was <laughs> always told this is food for plants. And as NASA has recently observed, there has been, I think it's about a 10% increase in biomass um, on the earth, largely due to the economic activities and planning of China and India, which account for the majority of this over the past uh, 20 years. This is totally unexpected because everyone had thought that with industrial growth and population growth, there would only be a reduction of, of green matter on the earth. That's the opposite. There's more, uh, photosynthetic activity, more chlorophyll. Um, and it's largely because these countries are doing things very differently from us. They are building large scale infrastructure. They are greening the Gobi Desert. They're moving the biggest water projects to move, to move abundant water from the south of China, where there's a lot of floods into the north, where there's a lot of drought and greening deserts along the way, reclaiming deserts and also producing a lot of industry, a lot of coal even, which I'm not a big fan of coal or, or, or uh, things like that or fossil fuels. However, it's not as evil as people think. And when you're poor and you want to get rid of poverty, this is a necessary pathway to go through. We went through it. Other countries should have the right to go through it as long as the objective is to get to more efficient forms of energy. Um, so this is already greening the world as we speak. Um, <clears throat> this is another graph of the greening function on the earth. Uh, India, China, very much leading the charge. We here in the West have some areas that has seen increased greening in leaf area, but the difference is here it's because we've just stopped doing things, whereas there it's because they are doing things. And part of the effect of CO2 is feeding plants. This is an example of one of the many, many models of carbon dioxide emitters that you could buy as a farmer with a greenhouse. You, would, you, you have to buy a carbon dioxide machine to input carbon dioxide so that your food in your greenhouse grows better. Um, these, this particular brand goes up to 1,500 parts per million, let's just say in average on the earth, it's about 400 parts per million um, of carbon dioxide. So what they found is that when you input up to 1,500 parts per million, depending on the plant, um, you get faster growing, more nutrient, more nutritious, more vitamin rich, bigger, happier plants all the time, vegetables, everything, fruits. Um, it's again, food, <laughs> food, it, right? And uh, <clears throat> one other thing to keep in mind, this was what's being done in COP26 today. And I bring up China and India once more because China and India, as well as Russia, Brazil, South America, uh, sorry, South Africa have boycotted. The, the heads of state of those countries have all said recently, they will not be going to COP26 because they don't want to be sacrificed on some <laughs> altar of, you know, Gaia or anything like that. So they're just not going to go. 
And back in 2009, China and India also, their leaders boycotted uh, in many ways COP20 or COP14, which was the first attempt in 2009 to get a one world green government with binding uh, carbon, carbon reduction uh, protocols. And they basically locked themselves in a room, India and China and Sudan, and said, we're not gonna participate. And it basically petered out, nothing happened. They were given fuel because you had climate gate that emerged just weeks before that event occurred which was a leak of thousands of emails from the East Anglia Climate Research Unit where people like Phil Jones, who's still a very powerful figure, this unit was managing the, the climate models, things like the hockey stick chart that we're gonna look at, that's used by the IPCC, the UN governments that link CO2 with temperature. They were, these emails proved that they were all covering up and fudging the data to keep the models active and ignore reality. So this created a scandal, and this gave the delegates at COP26 the opportunity to say, we're not gonna participate. This is built on really shaky ground, sorry. Many people think carbon dioxide is the majority of our greenhouse effect. Uh, it's actually not the, most, the biggest greenhouse gas at all. The biggest one is water vapor. 95% of the greenhouse gases is water vapor um, from the oceans. The, um, the rest is you know things like methane, which is something like 0.3%, nitrous oxide, 0.9%, CO2, naturally occurring CO2 from plants and you know, organic material that, that uh, rots or phytoplankton in the oceans or volcanoes, which there's many volcanoes, many more than we even realized, 10 times more than we, re we, thought, that we thought there were uh, 15 years ago under the oceans. All of these things emit massive amounts of CO2. Of that 3.6%, which is already very negligible, Human activity, human CO2 is less than 1%. It's about 0.9%. It is so negligible, it is ridiculous. But yet, this is what we're being told is causing all of the natural disasters, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the earthquakes that we've never seen before. Um, it's ridiculous. How much was that again of that 3, 3.6%? 0.9%. Less than 1%. Approximately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Another graph that's useful, global CO2 emissions, right? The point that I think is most valuable is around 1850, where the industrial revolution is beginning to get into high gear. We're still burning mostly wood, but we're getting onto coal. And you could just see country by country, the rate of growth of carbon dioxide approximately, uh, the big countries and continents at least. And the US and the EU, as you know, we went into a consumer society post-industrial model under the Malthusian controllers of the 70s, we relatively sort of cap off from 1979 onward. Um, but the other countries that want to develop and end hunger and poverty, they continue largely to grow their CO2. You would imagine that there would be a correlation in temperature that would, that would follow according to this formula of CO2 causes temperature. That's not what we see. Similar graph, 1880 to the present period, what we see in fact from our temperature charts are a cooling period from 1880 until uh, early 1900s, and then a warming period for about 30 years until 1942, and then a, a cooling period, it tapers off for about 35, 40 years until the 1977 period, and then we begin to see a warming period, and then it cools again. But this is a period, why is it after World War II, do we see now no more warming when we're at a maximum productivity level? We're putting out more CO2 uh, than we ever had before. So why does the temperature not go along with that, right? That, these are very important questions. And then today, 
since the year 2000, the population has has had two 2.5 billion more people. Why did the temperature not continue to grow with the increased CO2 output globally? Why does it taper off? So what hmm? has the development of the temperature been in the last 20 years since it uh, or is this is this going until that's that's until the the year 220? No, this is till the year 2014. So between the year 2000 and the year 2012 or 13 there was kind of. a what's called the great um the 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 global warming pause mm -hmm. which a lot of climatologists don't like looking at because it's embarrassing. <laughs> They want to try to just ignore the data sets that showcase the pause. And now since then, we've seen an increased blip of warming in the past several years. But we've also seen so many anomalies like Antarctica. You know, the Antarctica is, is registering some of the coldest uh, temperatures now on record. Its ice sheets are at the highest at this time of year on record. Um, so we have many anomalies all over the place proving that these computer models are lying to us, or the, I should say those who are managing the computer models and selecting what data sets are inputted are lying. Here's another example. The medieval warming period is another point of embarrassment. And uh, the climate research unit at East Anglia that I mentioned earlier, this is, like I said, along with the Our World and Data, which also manages most of the COVID dat data as well, that is inputted to NGOs and governments around the world to make policy. It's, it's very centralized. And people have to realize just how centralized these things are. Um, that shape then mass perception of what is a consensus, what do the experts think. It's it's very controlled. Um, the warming period was several hundred years during the medieval period where there were no SUVs, no industries, very low population, and yet it was significantly warmer than it was in our present age. Um, the cooling period uh, was a larger period from the Renaissance all the way to the beginning of the 19th century with a maximum period where there was no sunspot activity for 80 years um, around the time of Kepler and Galileo where it was very, very cold. Um, there's many documentaries written about this, but I just want to get this across, that this is very inconsistent with where does, you know, where does this medieval warming come from? If, it's, if it wasn't the human CO2 production, what else was it? Can Now, I ask you one question? The, the, um, yes. the warmer and colder period, we see this from, because there was no data collection as is today, so it must be from like um, historic reports or like images, like paintings or yeah, like... Uh, you, have, you have historic reports, you have also um, uh, ice cap sampling, you have uh, trees, there's a variety of, of triangulated uh, measures that scientists can take by looking at different things that nature gives us that, that has echoes or fossils memories of the uh, the past temperature changes um there's there's things like uh sedimentary um uh, uh shells of of little bugs or little little crustaceans that just uh take into their calcium certain deposits uh of the um different isotopes of oxygen and and carbon and calcium that also give you an insight into the Uh, temperature levels and other variables in the world that they lived in before they died and settled to the bottom as sediment in in oceans. Um, there's so many different ways that are that these things are done, and again, there's there's problems with a lot of it. It's not a, a refined science, but it's it's good enough to make some some pretty solid assessments. Um, so one of the scandals at the East Anglia Institute is that uh, Phil Jones, who I mentioned, who immediately after being um, punished. <laughs> he was suspended for a few months and then completely absolved of everything and put back to work as a controller within months. Everyone was told to just forget about it. He was part with Michael Mann 
of creating these models that just try to erase the medieval warming period completely and then project. And Al Gore uses this in his famous uh, documentary from 2005 mm -hmm. um, that just project this into a burning earth scenario of Armageddon and everybody is underwater, right? It's called the hockey stick chart. It has been completely disproven as a scientific fraud. Um, but despite that, people still reproduce this and, and, and hum it. And it just ignores the observable realities of, of the medieval warming period and many other things. Um, I know I'm running out of time here, so I've got a few more slides and then I'll, we'll just close it up here. But, but one of the other things that I found very persuasive is when you actually begin to look at the longer scale uh, temperature and CO2 data, you do find that they do fit together. That is true. But, and it's always said, correlation is not causation. Though many people who say that, they still end up believing that CO2 causes temperature change. When you zero in on some of these larger scale, what we have above is a 600,000 year scale uh, cycle. And below it, you have a, a zoomed in period of 70,000 years from the present. And you see several, obviously, uh, peaks and troughs. Which one is falling which? If CO2 was causing temperature change, then you would always see the CO2 metrics moving, growing or decreasing before the, the temperature is uh, increasing or decreasing. And in fact, what we do see in, instead is the opposite. You see that the peaks of temperature usually, not always, but usually peaking before, not after the, the CO2 peaks, meaning that the CO2 seems to be affected or shaped by the increasing or decreasing temperature changes, meaning that there's another variable that we're not looking at that's actually shaping the temperature changes of the earth. <laughs> Here's another example. Let's zoom in in another way and look at the 140,000 year uh, cycle. And we could just see here one or two solid examples of a 800 year lag between temperature change in blue and then the carbon dioxide uh, ratios change in accordance, but with a 800 year lag, it's amazing. And then further on, we see in the other section there, another lag of approximately probably a little bit more. So we're seeing again, it's just not fitting the way they want it to fit. Um, here's another example uh, that I've sort of already gone through of the global mean temperature anomaly, uh, which again, we've already sort of stated implicitly. And finally, um, this is the last slide of this type. Um, the projections are all about how we are controlled through fear. You, if you can select your data, and I, I forgot to mention this, but uh, Ilya, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Ilarionov, who is a Russian advisor formerly to Putin, no longer is the case, but in 2009, he still was. And he had made the point publicly that the Russians had given East Anglia Institute 476 um, data sets from 476 meteorological stations going back from 1865 to 2005. And he said it was scandalous. They ignored all but 121 of the, of the stations covering 20% of the Earth's surface area. They ignored all but 121. And amongst those, they selectively cherry-picked only the ones that they liked that corroborated the conclusions they wanted to have, making it seem as though the period of the 19th century was cooler than it actually was, and making it seem as though the period from 1965 to the present is warmer than it was. The fact is, we have been on the verge from the 70s, people were thinking we were going into an ice age in 1977. It was a surprise that it got warmer. So looking now at the current trajectories of all of the data, of all of the models that they utilize, they're all making scare scenarios. 
that the temperature is only going to keep rising. And that's why we need to reduce carbon dioxide to pre-industrial levels in order to keep uh, temperature less than 1.5 degrees, they say. That's the whole point why we're modifying global behavior, right, under, under the COP26 thing or Great Reset. The fact is, if you look at it, again, we haven't really gotten that warm in the past 14, 15 years. It's not actually, it's, and it's very much the same thing that they did for COVID-19. They projected out all of these fear scenarios of what would we do if we don't lock down society? They're probably going to try to do this again soon. Um, and what did they do? They just said, well, we're going to declare things that are flu cases. Typical flu has disappeared. We just call it all COVID-19 cases. Um, all deaths, you know, a variety of deaths are now being labeled COVID-19 and autopsies are not even being done in Quebec. They haven't been done since the beginning. So you can't even see if somebody actually did die of COVID-19 or not. So this brings us back to the question of, okay, well, where is this coming from? Who is shaping the Club of Rome that produced the limits to growth that, that justified this way of thinking about the future as an extrapolation of trends of selected data sets uh, to make people act in fear? It, so Alexander King, is the founder of the Club of Rome. He said in his 1991 book, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages and famine and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention. And it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. And thus, you get the actual sense of where they actually want the cancer to be carved out. It's humanity that they see as the problem. And the last slide I have, and then I'll stop. It's the very last slide. Yes, it is. This is um, one of the co-founders of the Canadian Club of Rome, who worked very closely with Alexander King. He was the former head of the Privy Council Office, a controller of the uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau administration major technocrat. He worked very closely with Maurice Strong as well, who was co-founder of the World Economic Forum in 1972. At the same time that the World Economic Forum was coming online, um, Maurice Lamontagne is running as a senator of Canada. He's now managing in an overhaul of the Canadian science policy practice. How do you fund science? How do you define what science is? How do you do define its purpose? Uh, it radically changed everything. Um, it was disgusting. And in his official reports, these are taxpayer-funded reports that one can read online, he says directly, nature imposes definite constraints on technology itself, and if man persists in ignoring them, the net effect of his action in the long run can be to reduce rather than to increase nature's potential as a provider of resources and habitable space. But then an obvious question arises, and this is it, this is the key, how can we stop man's creativeness? And this is really the thing, they recognize that when we are creative, when we make discoveries, we create imbalance. And a, and, a, and a control freak yearns always for balance and deterministic predictability, right? That's the game master can always control that type of game. They can't control the effects of creativity or making life better for ourselves by building infrastructure or new scientific programs that uplift people and give them dignity. They hate that because then we, we tend to think more critically and we think more freely for ourselves. Next statement, he follows up on this by saying, okay, well, how can we proclaim a moratorium on technology? It is impossible to destroy existing knowledge, right? Here he gets a little sophisticated. It is impossible to paralyze man's inborn desire to learn, to invent, and to innovate. So he recognizes that this is fundamental, but what does he say next? 
In the final analysis, we find that technology is merely a tool created by man in pursuit of his infinite aspirations and is not the significant element invading the natural environment. So it's not technology itself that's the problem. It's something else that's invading the environment. It is material growth itself that is the source of the conflict between man and nature. And this is what gets us at the, I think, satanic, <laughs> I'll just say it, um, element of this whole thing, that there is the idea that it is material growth itself. Human beings, every time we make life better, we have more people, then we cause nature to be in disequilibrium. That is what he says is the evil thing. And so we, he pr provides as a solution, turning our funding and investments of science, our infinite aspirations towards things that reduce the intervention on, on nature. Um, investments in windmills, solar panels, what are called appropriate technologies that don't affect Africa because they don't change tribal cultures or anything like that. You build solar panels, all you need to have is an education level is the knowledge of a squeegee to like keep the thing from gathering too much sand in the Sahara. That's all you need. You can keep colonialism. You don't change nature that way. You don't build dams. You don't build anything that, that you know, does that. So this is essentially what Carney is talking about, about creating a new green economy with new sets of values that put monetary incentives on reducing the carbon footprint, reducing the capacity to sustain life through those types of acceptable technologies. And bad technologies are ones that increase life, that increase abundance. Those are bad. Those are dirty. Don't allow that. So that was what I just wanted to end on. And I think the idea of, again, human nature and computer, don't think like a computer. And if you do think like a computer, you will always be, be susceptible to the arguments of people like Elon Musk or you know, Mark Zuckerberg or other AI cultists who say that inevitably computers will replace human beings with AI. And uh, you won't be able to prove them wrong. So basically, the underlying idea of these eugenicists, because that's what is underlying all of this, I, I assume, from what you're telling us, is that um, we need to slow the growth of population. We need to reduce the population because there's not enough uh, there's not enough of everything to go around for everyone. So let's make let's make sure that we, the elite, have enough. That's what it is, right? Well, yes, that's they're never going to be the ones to um, volunteer. Yeah, sure. First on the chopping block. Hmm? But yeah, but that's that's what it boils down to, I think. I think you're right. It's uh, it's extremely right. simplistic and uh, once again, uh, just as we've learned from COVID, thanks to COVID, really, uh, we have to take a close look at the facts. We have to not just be satisfied with, with, the sat with the facts that they serve us on a silver platter, but we have to ask questions. We have to get behind the veil that they have created, because only then can we understand what is true and what is not true. Exactly. And, and, and looking for the causal principles and things in human systems, the causal principle is in ideas and intentions. That, that's the metaphysical causal principle that it's the motive force of all human history, good ideas, bad ideas, and their effects that are measurable. But you have to look with the mind's eye and not your eyes because your eyes, your physical eyes can't see that sort of thing. And in, in nature, you have to look at things like cosmic radiation. You have to look at what is the sun doing? What's the processes inside of the sun? 
that we haven't even discovered and how is that being affected mm -hmm. by the galaxy, right? There's all sorts of things that we've only begun scratching the surface that are much more related to the cause of why we go into ice ages, why the temperature goes up or down um, than anything that CO2 has anything to do with. So we have to make those types of discoveries. And, and if people like Max Planck or Einstein or Dmitry Mendeleev thought the way modern scientists are being trained to think in the modern education system and just obey what you know a consensus opinion is about a standard theory of this or that, they would never have made the discoveries that they made. Right. It's they couldn't have done it that way. It, so we have to have get to, back to it. Right you have road. to not accept what they're serving you. You have to think outside the box and then make up your own mind. That's what Lord Sumption has been saying all along. You don't well, have sir. to be an expert on anything. You just have to have, you just have to use your brain, your head. Um, but this is really what it boils down to. It's a very simple conclusion, very simple conclusion. And it's very anti-human. Yeah. I think, you know, I've, I, when I remember, like, back in, in I don't know, when, when did this uh, Al Gore movie air? Like, that was in... Like, 2004 or something. So I saw that actually in a movie theater, and I was really flashed, and I thought, wow, Al Gore is speaking the truth, and, you know, because we heard about this, like, climate change thing before, and so it was like, I was really said, wow, that's that's amazing, you know, that he was uh, so so brave to to say to say the word basically yeah. but then you know afterwards i've been i mean what what's been striking me for a while is that i think it's if you are really looking um if if um, co2 was the problem then wouldn't you look at at all the things that cause co2 in the same way like for instance like stop the military from bombing like doing these these exercise bombings yeah. which which brings a lot of co2 into the air or like stop the the luxury or like the the you know these these cruise lines or whatever like might be um, a problem like of a larger scale and i think it's not not been looked at like you know with the same like i'm biased because what i think what you always see is like the things they i mean what suggested that we should do is always stuff that's on the small man you know it's basically us to like uh, pull the belts tighter to not take a car to not fly to i mean these things that, that are in our realm but the other stuff like the military for instance or like um when you show this thing of like, you know, that they're pumping um, CO2 into the, the greenhouses. I mean, how is that possible that we're not supposed to drive a car when at the same time, you know, they're pumping out this, this CO2 in large scales? I, I assume it's just like very, um, you know, it's, it's very unlogical that it would, you know, that you'd make this, if this was like the major, major problem, then you should take into account all these possible sources of CO2 pollution. You know, that's that has been bothering me for a while. Absolutely. No, that's well said. And, you know, they, they are hypocritical. And if you look at people like uh, Prince Bernhard and Prince Philip, the great nature lovers uh, who founded the World, World Wildlife Fund for Nature, um, they had no problems shooting, you know, white rhinos in, in safari in Africa. They had no problem doing that at all. They didn't care about nature. They only saw it as a means to an end. And the end was the, reinst the reinstatement of an imperial colonial policy that prevented the tribal people from developing and changing and keeping them in a little controlled cage, mm -hmm. right? That's always been the the agenda. And I, you know, another thing people always tell me is, oh, or you I tell me, they, they just say it all the time. It's why are we spending money on fusion energy research or space exploration or things like that when we could be spending our money on 
ending hunger and ending poverty on the on the world. And uh, it's like, well, we haven't been spending money. We cut, we stopped building nuclear power plants 40 years ago. That's the last one we built in Canada and the United States. We stopped our space program. We cut, we, we destroyed all of that for the past 40 plus years. And despite all of that, poverty has only increased, right? It's because there's an intention to keep people poor. Uh, that's, it does, it's not a question of putting money into Africa. It's the question of how is the money being used? And you've got IMF conditionalities and other things telling them they have to, they're not allowed to use it on dirty energy projects. They can't use their, their coal for their own development. And, uh, you know, they have to now, as we're seeing, build windmills and solar panels as part of a, part of a Green New Deal globally to, uh, to stay, you know, to have good behavior. Um, which again, it's totally colonial. It's, it's, it's racist. It's colonial. It's anti-human. It's, uh, it's just, it's hypocritical. Yeah. And you know what I also find, or like, I mean, we have to also really be careful about like, I mean, as the same thing, what we see with the, the whole Corona crisis, you know, when we have like a sort of not, um, correct or like un, unevidence-based um, assumption in the, the foundation of whatever we are going to decide. You know, it's it's like it bears a lot of risks. I, in, in 2015, I took part in a conference, you know, it was like, like a, a geoengineering conference because I, I was interesting interested like with regards to like um, uh, CO2, I mean, this global, global change management, whatever, uh, not global, I mean, this, this climate change management if there was something that we could do and it was like a, a three-day conference like with a lot of uh, profound uh, scientists you know from all over the world and they were like David Keith from uh, um, from Harvard he was not there but they were talking about his projects you know the the idea of like putting into the air um, I, I don't know some kind of stuff like that would do some sort of uh, solar radiation management like you know in the same mount like what we saw from this volcano in Iceland you know put that into the air so have a little bit of cooling effect so they were discussing all these things and um, they presented a lot of possibilities like growing uh, bamboo or something like that fast growing um, you know plants and then bury them into the earth so that you'd have some like reduction of CO2 and but what I found interesting, I mean, the, the things that they um, provided or like presented as ideas, they were really very um, intense, like, um, you know, um, actions with regard to the climate. I mean, like this idea of, of David Keith putting up, you know, bringing out into the air all these these um, p particles that then make problems themselves you know and they were talking about the white skies of geoengineering if you put all that stuff into the the air then you have um you know like i mean the sunlight doesn't come through in the same way then maybe you have problems with with um water vapor you know not dissipating so quickly or whatever i mean like all these things that are so intense and so technology driven and like so big in scale you know it's it's really very dangerous and if the foundation yeah. you know the the basic assumption is wrong i mean what kind of harm can you cause on earth and i think that that's the same i mean or similar this this thing you know we see okay it's not a it's not an Ebola virus that we're looking at but we're doing all these things on a large scale that are maybe have no they have no effect or are harmful and we're destroying so many other things. So we have to look at all these things very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that it's all about the effect 
because the just yeah. like I, I went through with the yeah. global warming issue, um, the entire um, mythology, the entire system was built around getting the effect of um, reducing CO2, which was to reduce human population, right? The, the cure was the disease, in fact, because mm -hmm. <laughs> the disease was never actually a disease. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's the same thing for co coronavirus too, I think. When you look at it, the effect, it, it's the cure that is the problem. That's always been what they wanted at the end of the day. Um, it was never, we're, we're afraid of things we shouldn't be afraid of, and we're not afraid of things that we should be a little bit more afraid of. That's, that's how our priorities have been all, all turned inside out. But um, I, I think when it comes to making big changes in nature, I'm not a, a fan of the, the Bill Gates or, you know, idea of spreading particles <laughs> to block out the sun. Um, but, you know, like geoengineering is an important thing, but you, it comes with the important condition that you have to have real knowledge of the principles of the biosphere in, in mind. You have to earn it before you make a change. If you, if you make a big change with ignorance, you can do a lot of damage. So you don't want to do the changes the way we've been doing big biospheric changes for the past, you know, 50 or so years of clear cutting rainforests or whatever. But, you know, if, if you have a sense of, I think, real processes, uh, you, you have a real knowledge that you've earned, and then you can start testing things like what Qaddafi was doing for greening the Sahara, uh, the Sahara Desert under Libya. That's a good example of just, you know, let's take some of that underground water that used to be above ground. Let's start systematically moving it above ground creating more green areas before NATO bombed them back to the Stone Age, you know. Um, China's doing it as well with the Gobi Desert. Um, they got a big 50-year project right now to, uh, to do a lot of big greening. And we'd learn a lot along the way. And maybe in doing so, we could start experimenting with, you know, 100-year, very long-term projects for terraforming other planets, maybe with the lessons we learn in our own backyard first. Uh, but you got to start somewhere. You got to sort of have a method of building real knowledge, and not let computers think for you and and lose your your power of human creative reason. You know, Which brings that's, us that's, back to ideas. Humans have ideas, and yeah. the other side seems to want us to stop having ideas. It's very very obvious. If it's true that it's all about the effect, uh, and I think it is true, uh, then upon closer inspection, you find that both with um, this climate scare and with COVID, the problem was created by them first in order to have this produce a solution which has the desired effect. I mean, it's very easy to see through this. Um, if you look at the um, at the idea that was it, I think that's part of the Great Reset that in 2030, no one will own anything and everyone will be happy. But the obvious question that everyone should ask is, who owns it then if we don't own anything? And and there you have it. I mean, it's all about the effect. They're going to yeah. own it. They're yeah, the ones exactly. who are killing us. They're the ones who are destroying our economies. And they're the ones who are going to own everything. So those are the easy answers, to me at least. Yeah, no, it, you can always dig into it more. and, and yeah. <clears throat> But yeah, there's simple, simple, elegant answers. And at the end of the day, you could also see why it is insane and absurd. Like, why are they wrong? Try to do a thought experiment and mm. prove why they're wrong, you know? And, and I think reading things like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World uh, is a useful thought experiment. Just read it. Read the dialogue between Mustafa Mond and uh, John Savage because mm. they're using these things as a guideline, a blueprint to yeah. navigate through their own grand designs. Uh, for society um, because this is something which is you know it, it's transgenerational it's a, there's a broader continuity um, so how does it co cohere and maintain itself 
And I got to tell you, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, the, the, the caliber of thinking, when you look at the new generation of, of oligarchs, and I include Klaus Schwab in this too, um, who's a student of Henry Kissinger, look at the quality of thinking that they exhibit in their writings and their words, mm -hmm. and you compare it to people like H.G. Wells or Aldous Huxley or Julian Huxley or Bertrand Russell, like the old generation, they were much higher quality thinkers. And they're getting soft mentally in their own decadence and their own surety of having been for generations on the top of the, the food chain. Um, you know, there's a, there's a stupidification happening as well. And I think that's a great reason, one of many proofs to know that the system that they are operating under, this social Darwinian system of might makes right, and you have the alphas, and then you got everybody else, you know, of, of the slave the slave caste below, they, they dumb themselves down. They they breed within their own little shallow gene pools, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The, the queen is was married to her cousin, mm -hmm. you know? The, the, this is weird. It's, it's actually unscientific. So they're actually disobeying the laws of nature that are discoverable because they're so committed to their cultural prejudices that they were born into and that, that they're cultivated with. And it's, it's tragic and it's sad and it's gross and it's wrong, but it's, it's part of life. And it's what, what's going to help us. I mean, inbreeding yeah. has never been a good idea. You know, oh. <laughs> we're seeing the results of this right now. I mean, if yeah. this, this, the graphs that we see, the Ferguson graph and the, this, these climate graphs that you showed, I mean, they seem to be pretty related. So it's yeah. that if that's the, you know, the result of, of if, the, if that's the best science they can do, I'm not quite sure if that makes sense. Yeah. No, no. And, and, and if you look at really good scientists, like there's a wonderful people out there like Heinrich Spensmach, who's a, a Danish um, scientist who's done remarkable work on cosmic radiation as, a, as far as a causal driver for cloud formation, which is such a, a simple connection to temperature changes, which is tied to the electromagnetic field of the Earth and the sun's electromagnetic field, which pulses. And when the sun's electromagnetic field is stronger, you know, when you have these 11-year cycles of minimum, maximum uh, solar activity, you, the, that stronger field absorbs most of the planets in our solar system, which keeps out intergalactic cosmic rays from coming into the inner regions of the solar system. And when the, solar, the, the, the sun loses that power, the, solar, uh, the cosmic rays just penetrate deeper into this, the, our system. And then they come in through the aurora borealis, right through the Van Allen belts, and they, they embed, they seed clouds which it, clouds drive temperature. You know, if you want to know why we're going, going to go into an ice age soon, you got to look at cosmic radiation. It's not global warming, we, which we should be concerned about. All mm -hmm. of the, the astroclimatologists that are worth anything right now are all warning that we're on the verge of a maunder minimum or maybe even a bigger ice age because we are ultimately sort of in an ice age. It's just been a little lucky 12,000 year period of a, of a little warming blip. But by all intents and pur purposes, we're we're scheduled to go back into a deep cool for a long time so there's there's ways that the human mind can cultivate you know quality ideas that could allow us to circumvent the the type of death that would normally occur to most things in nature mm -hmm. but we're all looking at the wrong things right now and you know it's it's we're looking it's, in, the, in the wrong direction yeah, yeah quite obviously that's true. once again this is a sleight of hand game that's being played on us Okay, well, Matthew, um, thank you for getting up so early for us, but I think our viewers will uh, be very happy with what, what they've heard uh, because it opens up our eyes and minds and makes us look at what we're being presented with uh, from a different viewpoint. 
uh, it enables us to, you know, ask the right questions and look beyond what they're presenting to us. Look through this, mm -hmm. um, through all this misinformation, propaganda, etc. It's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks Thank so you. Much. Okay, we'll be we'll be in touch. Uh, there'll be um, more opportunities for us to talk. Great. Okay. Take care Bye. and have a great weekend. You too. Bye, Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's... Uh, okay. S quickly changing the pace and wondering, well, if we're lied at with so many wrong facts and so on, um, do we want to have anything in common with that uh, bunch of guys? And um, we've got someone here who can talk to this, uh, 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 talk about this to us, which is, who is Ricardo? Ricardo. I'll, I'll just budge over a bit. Ricardo, take this seat here, please. Hello. And I'll switch over to Vivian. Do you need your mobile over there? <clears throat> no. Well, this is great, Ricardo Leppe. I um, heard a speech from you and we uh, spent time Zooming. Um, it was really interesting. You have studied learning processes a bit more intensively and what is going wrong in schools right now. And against the background of what we just heard from Matthew Eret, i.e. the generation of ideas, uh, it's always uh, lamented that children are uh, uncreative so that a lot of children can draw very well before they go to school and then lose this ability at school and become ever more phlegmatic with a view to uh, independent activities, etc. And I think that may have something to do, um, it won't come uh, from just their uh, growing older, it probably has to do uh, with the system that the children are in then. So maybe you can tell us a bit who you are, what your background is, and then you can maybe present your concept, your ideas. Yes, just a word on the person talking before us, it's not very nice to hear what he says, but I um, question everything you say. It's a little bit like uh, a magic. I'm a professional magician, and I can only tell you we are in a massive trick. And I'd like to look behind the scenes, and I can unfortunately only confirm in all areas to what's been said. Uh, wherever I looked into things, I came to these results. I just just didn't find them where I didn't look, where I said, okay, don't question, then you get the mainstream results. In other cases, you don't. Well, I'm Ricardo, I'm 31 years old, uh, I'm from Austria, I'm a magician playing with my fingers, and how do I lead the attention of other peoples and um, memory coach came from the fact uh, that my parents weren't fond of school because they suffered in school they said they want to do something they want creative going out into the world and do things and different things and it all pressed into certain rails and, and channels and they didn't want that for their children so i am uh, 30 minutes homeschooling 
and um, that's the time when the brain picks up information. After that, also, I went to a normal school in inverted commas, and that helps me. For me, it was good for what I do know. I know what is completely free and what school is, but with the mindset from the outside, um, looking how the others are and how can you practice. So I learned both versions and. Um, as a magician, I looked into picking up a lot of information in a short time. Imagine you're in a show, the uh, magician forgets the card that you have taken, something goes wrong because um, he did something, so you have to perform. You can't say, well, maybe, I don't know if that tricks well. It's going to be 100% all the time, no other deal. And uh, memory techniques is normal. And so I never uh, tried, uh, intended to go back to school after uh, finishing it. And um, uh, despite of that, I visited most schools in my life. Um, I, that came because a teacher told me, um, that she said, it's interesting what do you do with figures and could you show that to my class? So um, uh, that uh, I went to a school and I could ch could teach the children basic uh, mathematics skills, uh, calculation, multiplication, um, not in two years, but in 10 minutes. And that spread and I went to more and more schools and it spread around. And uh, so I said, well, um, I've had 100,000 people in front of me um and getting all the experience and then uh, the pressure the um the uh, parents approached me asking to start my own school so i thought i, I played with the thought a bit uh, um i thought there were some limits i tried to expose my limits and uh, well um i'm uh, i'm a, a professional magician saying well that's your limit it's not mine there is an old system somebody created that so someone can create something new it's not my limitation that this is not possible and then i started to look into gerald hooter's work who you know who looked into education and i kicked that all out it's not about me it's not about you it's about the children and i'm in front of um children a week every week th hundreds thousands and i ask them so i show them for 30 minutes that learning can be done differently um, they don't know it they say i learned it by heart and so on and then i show them that they can do it something else that they're genius all of them and they just don't know we know uh, learning something from by heart uh, what they like what they like to do they learn they learn all the names in the series and so on but three letters for chemical elements no way mathematical issues no way they learn it and so one thing is clear the children can learn but not from school so it's the method so let's imagine i'm a god and minister of health and i do away with schools and then what would happen and what would you like to learn and uh, then they said nine out of ten said okay very basic fundamental human means most of them said we want to have fun in learning and we want to learn things that we need in life well i don't know if you've had a job saying right now i've got a job completely free of any sense doesn't make sense do you want to do it 
And that's what the children experience. So John, joy and freedom that they uh, things that they need in life and we want to decide how quickly we learned. Nobody said, oh, I had to learn live, reading and writing, but they are about annoyed about the speed, the age, the books they learn it with and so on. So it's all different. They all want to learn, but at different ages. They don't want to learn what the school, school tells them, but they all want to learn. Every children, every child wants to learn. They, are, they ask you things all the time. You don't get them shut up. They keep on asking. So there has to be an institution which does exactly that. Otherwise, you'll have people who think themselves, who question everything and trust in themselves, knowing that the world is around for them. And that's what we do with the small children. So a three-year-old uh, child uh, 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 does its, its uh, pampers and smears it around the wall, and we say it's great. And then we say briefly afterwards when they're babies they can do everything and um, just briefly afterwards we tell them well if you don't write the right number on this paper the teacher says there's you're stupid nothing can do and no five-year-old child before school says this so that's what we implement in them we implement them, them that they uh, understand we do not uh, I'm, I'm stupid so i asked the children it's a two-level plan what do they want and then i asked them did anybody ask you at any time what you wanted and they said no a few said well yes but nothing happened and what's the only issue in area in life that i know which is about people create as an institution is created for people and they're not asked each supermarket asks the customer what they can do to improve the experience. They don't ask their neighbors. <clears throat> so if they did that with the children, um, if we ask 10 children and nine say it's all great, the question is, of course, what about the 10th? Um, but if you ask them now, you can ask 100 if they like school and maybe one will say they do so we have a massive problem here and future school of the future two steps first step we take the things as they are now they have to learn things still that they don't need they have to learn things that are wrong we take that and do memo techniques other techniques comprime uh, it comprise comprime it to 10% of the times and do 90% of the time with what's important sports getting to know your uh, your body how to change a tire breathing uh, techniques what does the environment work what does a computer work uh, what do I do with my own emo emotions so the things that are important in life that make me happy how do I stay happy how can I stay healthy how does my body work all these things and then the second step that would mean we have no restrictions by the system. It doesn't say, right now you are seven, you have to learn to read now. If you don't want to lean, learn it, you are dyslexic and you have to go to see a psychologist. No, you are seven. Maybe you want to play football, tennis, computer or whatever. Do maths and you don't want to read. That's okay. 
And that doesn't make him a bad person. So, if all of that is done away with, we can create something that grows out of itself in the sense of the children. So I thought of a few mechanisms on how we can create school as a growing organism that gets better in the sense of the children. If it's not in the sense of the children, if it is, it is in the sense of uh, everybody, maybe with a few exceptions of the ones that we've heard before. But they... I don't care about. So that's the basic approach and I would like to build up a school in that direction. Uh, 2020 was the first start um, that something came in between. I wasn't allowed to go to the school. Everything that I did was cancelled. Okay. Um, so I had to improvise. That means in summer I started digitizing things. I did that live uh, in front of people last October. I went online. It exploded again. And by now we are the biggest alternative education movement, at least in the German-speaking language. But it's going out in the world, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. Without me knowing about it, <clears throat> they just uh, write uh, to me, look, we did this and uh, it's all decentralized and um, in the sense of everybody should take where they say, okay, that works for me and I don't want to prescribe anything. Um, that would uh, tell me again, uh, having some kind of authority uh, explaining, um, saying how a million of children should be treated. So he doesn't have his uh, own children, he doesn't teach them, he's in no contact with them, but he comes up with the idea on how to deal with them. So if we ask the children, do you know how the school could be better? They say, I have a great idea, I have a great idea, but they are not asked. It is not wanted. And the question, has, uh, is completely against human biology. 100% not, well, maybe we didn't know better. The uh, small person, just uh, the small boy, just learned to jump and run, and then we tell him to sit down, and if not, you're, uh, you need to go to see a psychologist. And then they learned how to speak, and we tell them, shut up, speak only when I ask. And then you can only ask, uh, say what I told you to say. And if you've got your own ideas and want to go your own way, you're going to be punished. You'll only be rewarded if you say the right thing. And now be creative and be happy with that. Okay, find the find the mistake. It's impossible to work. And there's loads of studies, ABC studies, what else? Creativity of the children is massively reduced year by year as they go through school. It's a um, training system. In Germany, uh, in German, the word can be phrased as stop training. And uh, so what they did, they gave the um, children a paperclip, uh, gave them an hour and play. Uh, I tell them to play around with it for an hour, see what you could do with it. And I did it with four year old, 15 years old, 25 years old. And the result was massive. The four year old says everything is possible. I did magician shows for children before. What and you open the box um, in uh, in in front of the five years old? I just open the box and they start screaming. I can do this. I can do this. I haven't done anything. So immediately they start. I can do this. And then you ask the um, the, the parent. Uh, uh, an, an adult uh, for the simplest thing so they and they say oh i can't do this i don't want to so 
the point is say what i say you are rewarded and say against uh, uh, say something else than what i say you are punished it's a perfect time to see this we're in and before they go to school they don't have this and you've seen that in the presentation what i tell them is the children that the parents that do right in biology learning um language is the way parents learn it and we get told we've got to be a language talent people or children learn two three languages at the same time without vocabulary without books uh, besides learning to walk and run and jump and they do it with grammar grammar and vocabulary in the school with a professional teacher and don't get to learn the single language and think that they are no language talent so there's something wrong in all that story. They grew up with three languages. Oh, you mean it as an example? So bilinguals, um, uh, um, an Italian father, a Spanish mother living in Germany, they live three languages at the same time. That's real language. And that's what I have taken up the most efficient way to what we do in mathematics as well. We just looked at where does it work? And that is in India, for example, they are simply ahead of it, not because they are more smart when they are born. It's not uh, having an intermediate God saying, okay, you are smart, you go to India and these stupid guys go to Germany. No, they have a different system. I looked at it and showed it. And our children are just as good in maths as we are. Well, what I found with interesting with this presentation, we're in this current system, of course, as you described it, where uh, children are taught methodologies so they can learn faster. But what I uh, found interesting uh, with your approach, uh, well, the, the mnemonic uh, uh, te uh, techniques, but uh, there was a lot of physical aspects as well. Uh, there was, uh, you mentioned a child who always was going back and forth. If this boy uh, would have had to sit down, he would have burst. Um, um, if I think of my own boy, um, he couldn't do that uh, because he's very uh, um, agile. And um, those kinds of children have uh, big problems in our educational system because they uh, find it uh, their disadvantage because they're not as quiet. What I found interesting with the mnemonic techniques is that they uh, involve the uh, 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 the body, uh, um, the Indian system, where they add up figures, for instance, but you can multiply very uh, well with it. And then uh, you um, gave an example of a figure, a Thai uh, figure. <coughs> that way you can uh, remember uh, how you call this, um, what you call this uh, figure in Thai. And I realized days later that I still remember it. Um, I can't read other um, languages, um, other writing systems. Maybe I could learn with your system. Um, but the, like the Cyrillic system, uh, the Greek um, alphabet, I can imagine that, but others are so far away. But this way, I was able to remember them. And that's uh, quite impressive within 10 minutes or whatever. Yes. Uh, that's why I uh, gave you this uh, introduction to Japanese, and I think you can confirm that it can work. It works within minutes. I tried it with thousands, and that's why I can actually 
uh, claim it with little children. That's why I said yesterday I can't make a presentation for adults and for children at the same time. And other presentation speeches where you participated, where some younger children were present and older present uh, children. You can't do it at the same time. And these younger children who run around a lot, uh, they need to run around the house uh, uh, once so they can get rid of the uh, energy. And then I start with the movements because they're really brilliant about it. You just have to look at where uh, children are good at. Um, everybody's good at something. Uh, and those who are very energetic, want to move all the time, you have to treat them differently from those who want to sit. And um, they sometimes don't even notice that they learn any uh, that they're learning something. Um, uh, we made uh, exercises where they didn't notice that they were learning something. They were just having fun, but they were physical exercises. They were uh, physics, mathematics, and other things. But those were only transitional phases. That's only a transition. This. Uh, school of the future in two steps is only a transition until we can be free and take everything that is available. But uh, um, now they are things that are, well, let's call it censored. They're not desired, but no, nobody can tell me. I didn't invent uh, Indian mathematics. Uh, it's been around for centuries. Nobody can tell me that the last 30 years that the Internet has been around that nobody has uh, taken a look at the uh, Indian schools and uh, filmed and, okay, that's what they do, and uh, has come back and said, look, we have a good idea here. Nobody can tell me that. Well, the Indians are doing very well with all that IT stuff. Uh, that's going to have a deep anchoring somewhere. So I, I think probably they thought they are somehow skilled and talented, but maybe it is in this kind of context. And uh, that is, of course, a different aspect for us, um, probably not only as an exit from the current system, but in general, we make much more sense that we uh, look at these things and learn these things that, that are much more easier to learn for the children. Why should we fight with the system while other people have come up with something better? It's all there, but it's been kept from us. Um, and I spoke to the institutions, uh, to the ministries, and I said, I can uh, develop the um, textbooks, I can uh, develop the curricula, and everything is brushed away. Why? Why? Why was that? Well, some of them just kicked me out, uh, and some of them said this is uh, a fraud. Uh, this, um, um, no, there's nothing as efficient as our system. And then I asked, well, are you willing? I've visited so many uh, headmasters, and they can't be all that stupid that nobody um, ever uh, noticed that I was successful. Are you willing to call them or go along to a school class and I show it live to you? Sometimes it sounds unrealistic. I can show you, just watch it. And some headmaster said, uh, well, I don't believe it. Then, well, then come along and uh, watch me. So apparently, if you gave the example of children that uh, if they grow up with different nationality parents in a third country, they speak three languages, uh, probably because they are unbiased. Because if I see how language is taught in schools, usually you've got all that grammar that puts you into a frame that uh, you're afraid that if you don't understand the so-called skeleton, you can't speak the language, but these children can do without. 
free languages better than people who did it with all that grammar. So probably it's uh, due to the unprejudiced and uh, unopened un approach saying, oh, this is very complex, I don't dare to say that that way. Fear is the opposite of learning. And the intrinsic motivation is always there with the children. If we can maintain that, then we won. This child will learn everything it needs in a short period of time, even if it's Chinese uh, symbols. And uh, I had a child in Berlin who couldn't memorize a single word um, um, in, uh, in English, and then she uh, got to know a Polish boy and uh, fell in love with him, and the only way to communicate for them was English, and all of a sudden she absorbed it. Yeah, but because she did it, because she spoke, probably not because she read a grammar book. Definitely not, the children don't do that either. What I'm saying about learning um, a language, how uh, do dad and mom uh, do that with the child? And then there's a scientist with three doctorates and uh, we need to believe them and that's the way it doesn't work. Biology is way ahead of us. But somehow I think the point is that what you've presented in that presentation it has a more emotional component to it. It was about uh, if you get memories, they are funny or memory helps. Uh, it's easier to memorize things if you if they're funny, for example. And it's frustrating if you start learning a new language and you have little opportunity to move because you don't know all the figures uh, with the way you teach it, you can. But probably other things I'll learn quickly as well, so that in a short time I get to a level that I'm able to communicate because that's when it starts being fun. Um, sometimes there are people who are in a school for five years, evening schools, and uh, sit there for ten years, and then they're able to say their names in English or say, how are you? And that is very frustrating because uh, you're so reduced when you're abroad that in your personal, you can't unfold your personality or get into a dialogue. So. There are free videos, uh, if you look at all those language videos and there is a um, uh, an introduction on how to learn a language and you can do it for a weekend and after that you can communicate in that language you don't speak it fluently but most children who have who'd had eight years of italian at school can't speak as well with uh, than the children who do it for a weekend uh, i've tried it we uh, it's about getting into the language we don't think in uh, grammar um, if you um, are uh, native speakers of German, then you uh, don't have, and you haven't studied grammar, then you know sounds right or sounds wrong. And that's all you know. But if you study um, uh, in current schools, then you have to, you think, okay, uh, Ricardo, just ask me something in the second person, and I have to answer in the second person present as well. Um, well, uh, what is a help here, really? Apparently, um, they are restrictions, the grammar is. Just like before, uh, they're offered a solution that is actually the problem. You create a problem that never was. Language has always worked. You have to get into it. I think the first step is a crucial step. And uh, if you are in the scene, in the country, 
um, the example that you just you've given, uh, you are only able to talk to someone in that way. You won't just read a grammar book, but you'll just do it. And then it is exercise, it's training that makes the master. The first step is crucial and the rest comes automatically. I did, I wanted to um, become a jet pilot at the, um, with the army and um, I got out of it early enough when I thought that um, I can't do this, uh, take an order and do it. Of course, here I completely agree because what I could uh, hide away from this, I have uh, red-green blindness, uh, but I could, uh, so you go along a table uh, and there's different images, pictures, I don't know what that term's called, these different spots which you have to find a figure and they uh, went uh, uh, in front of me and uh, I could learn what the people uh, pointed at me before so they did find it out at some of the tests and thought sorry not a very good idea with you could be very expensive if you um, don't know red and um, uh, red from green and you pull the ejection sheet instead of uh, lowering the gear. So um, that's places where you have to follow rules, but uh, nearly everything else, especially languages, you have to talk them. And you know, did you understand it or not? And probably nice people are there to correct you. And it works, I fully agree. Maths, well, I don't see it that way, uh, but that could have uh, some talent to it, maybe. And that you say it's not the case, but anyway. Well, after this Zoom uh, meeting, I would have said the same, but um, from what I've seen, it is very relieving. Um, many things uh, you can um, learn very fast, and then uh, you have to understand uh, the mathematics behind it, of course, but you don't have to apply it all the time because the mathematics really is simple. But you have such a time delay by multiplying, for instance, that you could do much more easily in other ways. I think this physical aspect gives you a, I don't know, more strength to do it. Well, it's the emotional imagery, funny link up that works better. And I fully agree to, like in sports, we have Olympic Games and it's MI. Uh, German champion or world champion. Of course, that's beyond it. I agree. But if they really get good in maths and German, that doesn't have anything to do with talent. So talent is the last couple of percent. And uh, I've seen that in many, I've done that in many presentations, that genius children who uh, pull the third root of something uh, up to a million, that this is not a case of genius. It's a simple technique. Everybody can learn that very easily. Um, also, people who were in the big TV shows, I learned a 200-figure number. Um, anybody can do that, and I did that with many people. The point is, if I have talent and zeal to go right to the top, that's a difference then. But if um, w w anybody can do far beyond what is called a genius level now. I think we have to ask another question um, concerning school. I enjoyed uh, going to school because <coughs> I found it easy. It wasn't all that difficult for me. But uh, I had the problem with uh, mathematics. I always had uh, afraid of it. 
And I asked myself at some stage, why are you, well, I, I was never an excellent student there. Uh, and I asked, like, why is it? And I uh, changed my attitude and all of a sudden I got good in maths. And I think this attitude issue is a big um, issue with mathematics, at least. And um, because many say that school, okay, is... Uh, uh, kind of a biotope uh, where you're with other uh, children, etc. That is true, but you could imagine having it in a different way. It doesn't have to be in this constellation that I only uh, am with uh, age peers in the same uh, class, and that is always a group of 20 to 30 uh, pupils. And the entire uh, concept could be entirely different. I could imagine, for instance, that we, uh, I, I could have learned what I needed to learn. I found that it was uh, repeated again and again. Oftentimes I found that uh, we um, repeated things all the time over and over again with history and other things. But if we had this uh, much faster, and then I had a school where I can do um, printing and uh, uh, caring after uh, caring for uh, chickens, etc., or um, um, make paper or whatever, like an art uh, school, art school where I can try out things. So I'm not indoctrinated all the time. You have to do it this way or that. Um, um, so, where you have a certain freedom, that would be great. And these are the main uh, subjects, is uh, music, sport and, and arts. That's what the focus has to be, and it's always cancelled. These are the three can cance most cancelled subjects. And if somebody says, you, I want to be a musician or, or art and not sports, uh, they can say it's great, saying, I don't want to do sports. It's good. It's everybody wants to do that. I don't know a single child which says yes to all types of music, all types of art, and to uh, sports, and they don't like any of them. So they do want it. They do want one of these at least. And uh, of course, it's um, bad to say it's it's bad. You you have to. We're not alone in a world. We are a social being. Uh, that would also uh, be a problem to. Um, what, what do we learn if we're all alone? I use my elbows. I have to put my own emotions, my own needs away because I have to follow what the guy in front says to be good. Do we want that? So that in the in the in life, where did you get most uh, social contacts from? Hobbies, profession, sports, activities like these. So, how many people from school do you know? Well, hardly any of those. You lose sight over time. We have a different development uh, that we observe now that the people you thought, well, not me so much, uh, but others that I uh, knew where I thought those are our friends. Through Corona, all of this um, became untangled. But then all of a sudden you met people that are the same level uh, with you and uh, without having to adhere to any conventions, it's a natural thing, a sudden thing. Yeah, that's why I say, yes, social being, but that doesn't, no, social interaction, but that doesn't have to take place in school, in a classroom with 30 other people. You can think this completely anew, together with the children. And in principle, um, ex there would be more exchange if you imagine that you have 
a, a class um, for um, screen printing, etc. And then you have different uh, children from different age groups, and uh, then you have more uh, dynamics. Um, you have more real connections, such as in a sports club, um, rather than being yeah. seated next to somebody else in school. If if two of us are in a tennis club, we have one thing in common, which is tennis, and that's what we can talk about and what we can join up with. So I don't want to restrict anybody here. It's just important that we do that together with the children and the parents and the teachers who are there for the children, and they have uh, very well selected. So uh, now they have to be deciding locally, independent from the top. They can go up to saying, um, I have a question, have you got a solution for this and that? But I have to be able to decide, and this is why I always say decentralization of educational authority. And uh, if one director says, no, I'm a bit more focused on sports, and the other says, no, I'm a bit more on respiratory techniques, that's uh, good for me. Everybody should be able to decide for that themselves. What I want to do is open a library of opportunities and possibilities that do work, and everybody t picks out of that what they feel well with. I don't know, uh, little John in, 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 in South Wales, what, what's he for? What does he want? But I can offer them a range of things that do work, and then the parents could um, say, okay, let's try this. He may like this, and he can say that he likes it. And if he wants to go to a state school, which some children want to do, yes, they can. But what do I with the other nine who don't? Well, they have to be able to decide what school to go, an alternative school, a private school, or no school at all, as my child, my parents were able to do with me. And that's the option. That's the option that I want to give to the people for a free selection. And um, uh, what your religion is, I don't care. Just don't annoy me with it. Uh, the school you send your child to, it's free to be. Let me decide where I want to go. Competency has to go back to the people in all areas, not in school. It all has to be decentralized and localized, the opposite of what's being told to us. Well, that's been our approach the whole time. Wolfgang Wodak uh, keeps pointing out that we need to reclaim our sovereignty, that we need to decouple from these superordinate global structures that certainly, and we've noticed by now, of course, um, have um, certainly don't have our interests at heart and aren't our governments because they're not our governments anymore. Um, and um, then it makes sense. But how could this happen in concrete terms? Now, for example, if uh, a group of parents um, is motivated by you uh, to do it entirely differently, what do you tell them? If they say, we'd like to use your uh, approach, or what can you suggest as how could we do better without the uh, mandate, without the um, straitjacket, because that seems to be what is an impediment. Well, um, as it's a not, in Germany, it's the most difficult country due to the um, surprise to the uh, to the legislation. So uh, the first thing I tell them, I ask them, what do you want? 
like in school, something like in school, no quicker, less stressful. Do you want to learn completely free, give all freedom to the children? Do you want to have external tests and just be quicker and uh, use the uh, less t the other time for other things to do? That's the first step, that idea. And then, as there are so many inquiries that I get, uh, nobody knows where things come up. It was all decentralized and what I tell them and what uh, is, is don't mention my name. There was good school concepts that went on a name and a cover and after three weeks uh, the media killed it and that's what we're doing with me but nobody knows where we are and who does what. It's decentralized so take the content, take the opportunities, take what you need build it up in your own name and bring your own personality in. So that gives you a frame, otherwise I will be your frame and I don't want to be. I just give you the tools and um, I give you a hammer, a nail and a, a, a few wooden boards. Build from it what you want and uh, just go to the homepage. It's very easy. We are free.com in German. Wir sind frei.com. It means uh, knowledge creates freedom and there is some instruction on how to build a school there's people who've done it there is individual networking opportunities for every federal state in their in every region and so people can network there there's ten thousands in it um more and more always and if you only open it for half a year and it's got 30,000 members already and join up with us and build something regionally call it whatever play it playgroup call it playgroup munich so that nobody knows what's going on and that means you've got the rough instructions you've got the networking um, for every subject that we have math latin and english everything we have supported we've hundreds of teachers and um you can say i'm a viviana i have a problem i have i didn't understand this can someone explain to me and usually three people come up and explain that and then okay that you can understand things and he doesn't assess you he doesn't know whether you have heard it five times or the first time it's all free of charge we just take what where somebody gives us free donations many parents many teachers who are happy to provide two hours per week there is a timetable and saying i like to give some of my time for children for other people free of charge and there there's sports in the morning we know uh, about uh, herbs uh, respiratory techniques and normal school subjects and the only thing that we measure is um do the children click it on and like it and that's the criteria so there are some opportunities how to process the content and there is uh, exercises and courses i have done over 150 videos how do i learn a language how do i do this uh, formulas how can i do weekdays uh, abc and uh, times on the clock 
I could just put that on. You could enter Mickey Mouse. You can put anything. I uh, just need something. So free available. And always people say, where's the problem? What do I have to pay? Where's the subscription? Well, look for it. We won't find it. And it's all there free of charge. And still the first four years of school have been done with finished stories. So the things that people have to learn, children have to learn in school, and we're going to do that for uh, upper school level. And then all of the things that have to be learned in school, it is prepared biologically, so to say, ready for the brain to consume. You're talking of conventional uh, curricula. Yes, yes. So there is a course on how to learn at Solve. Um, uh, I can learn things, other things. Um, and then, in addition, we've got the school curricula, um, all of the topics that have to be there. Uh, sometimes the minimum re regional areas, sometimes, well. Well, essentially, it's about a new approach in so far as uh, we're talking about new techniques of learning. Yes, yeah, been always been there. Yeah, as you said, yeah, from India, mathematics, for instance. But essentially, it's about uh, trying to acquire knowledge that uh, is normally transmitted via so many crutches that aren't really crutches, they're really impediments to take it and um, present it in a, um, a way that's uh, appropriate for children and faster. In the first step. In the second step, we can take a lot of the curricula as nobody, not all, everyone is interested in physics. They're all going to lead, learn how to read and write and calculate basics. Um, but uh, if somebody wants to know about history before the 30-year uh, war, um, not everyone is going to be interested in that and that can cancel that. And so we want to provide all the curricular content for everyone who's interested. How do I use my brain plus psychological things? Um, so why is Robert reacting this way? Why do the boys uh, write small letters? And why do the girls write big? How do I talk about legasthenia, HDIS, and so on? Discalculi, um, if you can't do maths, that is, um, we just solve that in, in minutes, literally. And we make all of that providable. And I'll give you an example. You're a single mother with three um, ch children, everybody far away, and you have to work, and you want to train your child. And with this, you can do it. You are independent. It's good if I have a very good teacher who works with this and have, gets this human component in. And that's the most important thing. If I've got that, it's nice. But even if I don't have all that and I depend on myself, I can do it with that. That's the idea of it. And it can be used on top of schools if you're still uh, caught in the uh, conventional system. You can do this additional training with the children in order to make it easier for them, even though it may, of course, be more boring for them, but then at least they have a certain uh, certainty. Less stress, less uh, fear of tests and so on. And uh, they have learned the vocabulary much faster and they have a lot of leisure time and that 
is um, they can be told what to do in that time. So there is existing state schools where the teacher have understood this and say they compromise uh, the soft, the the material, the content of that, and then they can decide what. Let's try out things in nature, and nobody can prevent that. That's a good thing. Even for schools now, um, there are schools that say, okay, we want to implement it. If you want to do this, you can introduce this additional element. And if you can see, well, if the children uh, know it already, you can actually proceed faster with your normal curriculum. Either that, or you find out where's the children who need to extra training, or maybe you know the parents are divorcing and that uh, boy has a problem we could take care of. All these things that are simply ignored in school now, and I don't want to prescribe the teachers what to do with the time. They can look in the groups and see what do the others do, picking up ideas. And they decide for themselves. Otherwise, I'm the next tyrant who will tell them, well, if you don't do the school as I tell you, then I don't want to give you the content. And that's exactly what we don't want. So it's completely local. And there are people who have been translating this stuff for themselves. And I think people from all around the world are listening to this. So if you are in your country and you want it for your own language, just go to the website. We'll send it to you. You can translate it. There's only just a single condition. You have to give it away free. Otherwise, we'll have the same shit again. So if you have it, if you want to use it, please do so, but share it for free. And that means it's going to be spreading worldwide. And I have thought about things for Africa, for example, which was a topic before. There are tablets with a little solar panel in the back. That means uh, they learn how to read, how to calculate. And what's uh, the basic uh, rights? Most people are kept small without knowledge. So that's why I call, why I say knowledge creates freedoms. If you don't know about things, you see that in the climate, you see that in Corona, not knowing things, here get tools on how to get knowledge quickly and how to really learn to ask critically and that's it you've got it nobody can take it away because all you need in africa is sun i think that's the only thing that don't have uh, that that they have no lack of is sun so it'd be great uh, if somebody whatever country they come from contact us and we will to help them to implement it so the easiest way is your website uh, com. yes that's the address of the of the club the email address address is um, um, email at Wissenschaft macht frei well I think that's an, a great liberation really um, I was in an uh, anti-authoritarian uh, kindergarten uh, so maybe I can ask questions more freely that others don't ask. But I have to say, uh, in my case, the situation was my father was a, a professor of psychology. And so um, there's this freedom and um, uh, reading and doing and, and playing around. That was always something that was tolerated, encouraged. Uh, so doing things as we thought fit. But I uh, think this purely anti-authoritarian is not only um, this has a different aspect as well, because it asks what is fun. 
it adds, you know, the aspect, it's not only anti-authoritarian, but it also goes as far as um, creating fun and um, learning things yourself. So, um, without any rules, uh, some of my um, uh, the other uh, children in my kindergarten um, had no structure. Nobody told them what to do, but then they didn't know what to do with themselves. So this is uh, good because it kind of encourages children to do something, enjoying uh, fan, fun. So learning with fun. Yes, you can teach the rules in a different way. Um, if the children start to want to play football on the motorway, as a teacher, you say no, obviously. But the point is to bring the idea across and the reasoning. My parents did this and they were told uh, they were ridiculed all, um, ridiculed all the way through. Um, uh, so uh, playing with fire, children love to play with fire. And uh, so what my father said is, okay, let me be with it and let it do at small scale. If you want to hold your hand in it, uh, don't do, do it. Um, um, it was very clear that I don't just touch into the open flame. That was uh, very clear. I learned that and I don't have to discuss this and or you have to do this and that. So anti-authoritarian alone is not enough. Uh, you can't allow uh, children to be in a vacuum. You need to give incentives to show them the direction. Yes, you should tell them and show them why they should adhere to rules. Well, as soon as I understood something, I could accept it. My history teacher uh, started to tell me uh, stories and uh, I just laughed at her saying, I've never heard of this. And I said, I lived in the with the Indians. Um, so you read them, you read um, you read to them what, what, what was in the books and I said it's something else. Same thing with my physics teacher. My physics teacher, I said, don't think, don't believe what's in the book. Ask yourself, it can't be true. And then he called me um, in front of the class and he told me, look, if I don't tell you what um, is in the books, I have to feed my children. I'm scared of losing my job. So please stop asking these questions. And that was okay with me. And that's what my children did. Uh, what my parents did when I wasn't allowed to do things, it was reasoned. It wasn't said, they didn't say, because I said this, and this has always been the case. I didn't have this. And um, I never went to drugs, cigarettes, or alcohol, or anything, um, because they told me, look, we do it like this because and now decide what you want to do and they lived it out for themselves it's very important that the parents didn't have any beer either none of it and this is just the role model i can't be panic as uh, panic well, maths as a uh, children so say here this is ricardo giving you a few maths videos um, learn it what can i expect so i say well, you hear something like, well, you learn for your life, not for school. It's the best time of learning, so nice. How often have you 
asked your your parents and um, seen them look reading a maths book because they love maths when you came home from school so I asked them well never but they always tell you that that's what you do and uh, they don't do it and then they find out well maybe I was lied at and uh, the parents in their free times they don't read maths books or physics books or english but they have a coffee and and gossip well very well <coughs> so again a closer look is worthwhile um you might do um, that by checking out this website and then you have to decide what you want you have to be able to see different sides of the coin my wife is a teacher and she has been quite frustrated uh, sometimes um, saying the real good ones are uh, not covered by the system those who don't tread down the pre-determined uh, path uh, they are lost by the wayside and that's um, uh, she said it's very hard to take there's marvelous schools marvelous people in the system but it's only a few it's a minority many of them went in with positive ideas and they fail in the system fail because they were told they have to do what they have to do i talked to many many teachers not all of them are in line no we know but the system is too strong at this stage maybe this is an opportunity now i think it is yes it's uh, very important and this could be the turnaround now we know that many people from the bases are organizing in these groups maybe they haven't all been inspired by you but a few will see it now and uh, they will spread the word that people look at it and i think it can help it can help to win the time in order to develop other things i think that's very important well i have to say um, you have to see that uh, the Pope um, had slaves um, uh, at work and uh, wars killed people. It's us who allowed this, it's us who did this, so we have to change it. And something positive by uh, conclusion, if they knew how much is in uh, the background, then I wouldn't have a... Um, uh, yeah, I would right, have right, a, a negative Nazi article well. every uh, uh, three weeks, but every day. Yeah, I'm a uh, Nazi, an aluminum hat, a uh, sectist, um, misogynist, uh, child so, abuser. Come wise, you shouldn't say these things. I know what I am and what I'm not, and as long as little children uh, hug me when I... Uh, make presentations and say yes i'm a, a genius i didn't know thank yes. you i couldn't live with it at the end of the story you have to see the the facts speak for themselves quality prevails is what someone said ricardo very very interesting and enlightening um what many people didn't think that outside of this uh force system you can do things as i said my wife said a while ago the system has broken down this education system i've said for a while that the justice system is broken down and now we notice where every we low we lo everywhere we look the system is broken and uh, it's interesting there's always something added on top Yes, you think you've got it, and then there's more to it. Well, this is um, School in Movement, Marius Asfeld, who uh, looked into this. Well, and this 
adds to it, expands on it, new tools. So the school, um, um, she attended the uh, Protestant school in Berlin uh, Center, and I think they had the best um, leaving cert, the best uh, graduates, and what they do is they work in group and uh, groups, etc. You got to list it all and give it to everyone to select what suits them, and then it's done. It's done, and too many know it. They can slow it down. It's all bad. They're all sects, and so everybody who took their children from school have been called idiots. All the mothers with small children, but it's done. It's through. So a lot of people took their children off school. Yes. Well, that's probably um, a broad movement. We can't rely on anything uh, reported by the mainstream uh, media. It's all done with. Uh, not only this, the system is broken. Uh, a friend of ours uh, who we uh, appreciate very much, uh, he said, look, there's a 300 meter wave that will um, gobble up those, wash away those who uh, told us all these things they know already that it's coming they know they have it have the well, chance um of course i know most about uh, education i can say it's unstoppable it can be slowed down but it's unstoppable it's done otherwise all the years that i've put into this will be in vain well it certainly won't be in vain ricardo thank you very much we now have to listen to Norbert herring who has been waiting uh, for a while you're welcome to stay I um, I live uh, in car and presentation, so I'll be uh, okay, thanks off for taking to the, the next time. presentation. Thanks for taking the time. Um, I'll, I'll give you the other two contacts as well. I was with uh, Hans Christian Christine, uh, and we need to talk about this one of these fine days. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. I'll move over, Mr. Herring. I know you've been waiting for a while, but uh, you're still okay, are you? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, great to have you with us. The topic is, uh, Corvin told us how the World Economic Forum used the pandemic to extend their influence on the global governance. Very important strategy to recover the uh, power back from the corporates, more important. Let's go right to it. <clears throat> the Economic World Forum is a very central topic, especially now. Okay. Well, I was waiting for the for the question now. Yeah, yeah. What's the what's making the WEF so special? Why are they able to? Uh, uh, they call them elites, uh, but so-called self-declared uh, uh, elites together. We know it's from Klaus Schwab started all of this in 71 with another name. But uh, strangely enough, with 33 years uh, old, he was able to get 400 leaders, economic leaders together. Uh, he built it up with more and more economic leaders and uh, people who control companies who are controlled by others right to politics and media how can that be explained that we didn't get it uh, what uh, strange concentration of power happened well it all happens in this 
shadow world of global governance, where, well, which is far removed from our everyday experience, from all the parliaments, even though it's very important because all the initial decisions are taken there that then uh, subsequently are only passed down to the parliaments in order to be sanctioned and cast into uh, the shape of acts of law there. That is where the World Economic Forum cooperates with the largest, uh, world's largest corporations that are assembled there for whom the World Economic Forum does the lobby work. And that is what I uh, show in relative detail in my uh, book, How Mr. Schwab managed, managed to systematically organize the World Economic Forum with the corporates, uh, the uh, help of the U.S. government to uh, take control of the U.N. system, how they uh, use international uh, fora uh, to extend their influence. The trick is that all these fora are informal and that also uh, applies to the G20, so the governments are the 20th most important nations. That's an informal club that has no decision-making power officially, but we know, we all know, that a huge uh, lot is decided there. But as it is legally informal, the government goes there without a mandate from parliament, and uh, they never say that uh, what we agree here is uh, subject to parliamentary control. No, what they say is we commit to implementing this at home, and then the government majorities in parliament have to adopt it. The G20 is like a spider in the web of the entire system of such informal fora, which oftentimes set the standards in public-private partnership that then will be implemented subsequently. A very interesting example are the standards for uh, the control of the pharmaceutical industry, of how medication is licensed, is approved. Uh, there is a body called ICH composed of government representatives of the EU, the US and Japan. And on the one hand, and um, pharmaceutical organizations on the other hand, from these three uh, economic areas, and these pharmaceutical organizations are not consultants, but they meet at eye level with the governments to agree on the standards um, of how their uh, research, their studies are accepted or rejected. And with a bit of an imagination, you can um, imagine what uh, is the upshot. Well, there's, I think, an organization called ICNIPS um, that determines the radiation levels that may be emitted by um, telephones. I think it's almost incestuous what they're doing there. 
Is that uh, comparable uh, to what we started seeing many, many years ago, the uh, media interest for uh, understandable reasons has slackened off? Uh, is it a bit like these public-private partnerships that um, in an absurd way uh, started in the financial industry. The most obvious example for this absurdity was the fact that German banks uh, had free consultants uh, consulting uh, the uh, financial ministry. Um, so they were more than consultants. They were basically those who determined the agenda. Can we expect this to happen across the board? Um, well, the financial industry, of course, never uh, created anything, they only plunder. That is maybe the most striking example, but this seems to be across the board, across all industries, that private industry use lobbyists, um, you said WEF uh, does the lobby work for the corporations here, that the entire um, the, uh, business uh, has a direct influence on government uh, activities via these fora. Yes, the cooperation of um, governments and corporates is a fundamental feature of the system. Without a friendly government that creates the rules that um, that capitalism needs, it won't work. And that's the being, the fundamental character of capital, which is the value of um, restricting competition. Capital is the counter value of all future profits uh, calculated down to the current value. And that is only be, um, will be implemented and realized when there is no competition. If it went like in the textbooks with uh, full competition, there won't be capital. So um, competition and capitalism are not the same, and uh, they are opposites. I quote uh, the investor Peter Thieling in my book, who did a lecture on uh, saying that competition is for losers, and that explaining that uh, all entrepreneurs are have uh, following the main goal to stop competition and not having to face this and that's what the corporates need the state for that's a very normal approach in capitalism and that many of the parts of the state including the investment in infrastructure in education and training uh, that is elementary uh, and crucial for the profit interests of the corporate and um, that can be called very normal if you agree to capitalism but there is a self-enforcing tendency that the corporates try to get more and more and more rights and uh, get more and more protection uh, patent rights is a good example here levering out um, every competition and everything concentrates even more and more. That's a typical characteristic that returns in that ends in uh, cleaning crisis as often it was big crises, wars or breakdowns 
like in the world uh, um, uh, financial crisis and then uh, it starts all over again and we are now looking at a very extreme situation um, that we have reached which I call the final of capitalism because um, it can't be foreseen how the clearing crisis can be foreseen and all the elites do everything to avoid it and also after the end of capitalism that i see dawning uh, they want to maintain their privileges mr herrick i have uh, given an interview yesterday to one of the most important i American um, psychiatrist Peter Breger, a very experienced person who has written a book about Corona, and he sees, in parts I agree to him, but not completely, he sees the problem that we're having today economically, socially, nearly always only as a Chinese problem. I think he does see that there's an American platforms. Peter Thiel is one of them who uh, have are responsible for these uh, platforms. I think that he sees that American platforms are anti-competition and trying to get oligarchs. But he sees it as a majorly Chinese problems. Really, I don't understand this really. I see this as now what the destruction that's been going on at the moment and what is being destructed is shared around the platform amazon first of all but all the chinese grab their um grab what what we have an in industry um our retail uh, the chinese are getting our automotive industry yes uh, geopolitically that's the american view on a very important geopolitical aspect of this I see this as a very important point because what is happening now is quite monstrous really and it is not happening for small reasons. Uh, that is why we have to look at the big uh, ge geopolitical problems and issues and China is very important here indeed because the Americans have arrived at the conclusion reasonably so probably that the digitization and what will be called intelligence uh, or smartness in the future will be the key of who is going to be successful in the future economically or not and with that who will have the uh, military rule that's not my formulation but this has been said by national safety committee for artificial intelligence from the u.s who have uh, written this and with that reason um, uh, this commission was implemented by the head of the former boss of google eric schmidt and uh, from these a presentation has become public saying that exactly that china is um overtaking the US in terms of AI and that will lead to them um, being the prevailing power economically and military 
uh, wise, and that is something which the American government in the broader sense does not think acceptable. So that means they're going to do all possible to stop this. And in this presentation, there's two main reasons given for China being so successful, which is on one hand, the large power of the state, the cooperation with the big Chinese corporates um, without being restricted by any data security laws, civilian laws, so that the groups get all data they need and can do everything with it what they want and that's why they have much more opportunity to develop applications and the second reason being that the analog infrastructure in China is so bad and in other industrial countries so good that they can't uh, that they are not dependent on digitization but the people are happy with what they have they like to go for shopping find what they want and uh, think it's a positive experience while in China if you get everything digitally it's being used immediately because many people have uh, bad opportunities to shop and uh, tele-education telemedicine are good offers if there's no corresponding analog method as we have we are happy with what we've got and look at these development more critically this is seen as a big problem is presented as a big problem and what we see the analog infrastructure is destroyed at record speed shops are closed schools are closed or everything is digitized extremely in the schools but also uh, digital sales platforms make massive progress and at the same time uh, the power of the governments is extended, all protective rights are reduced, uh, that stops um, AI, uh, Silicon Valley and the Chinese pendant in the end to take overall power. That is what we are looking at now and it matches perfectly this geopolitically strategy, um, which as I said, I didn't formulate myself, but that commission did. So if the power of the governments is extended, are we not really talking due to that 30 years of very close link up of Davos, uh, of the Davos guys and public-private partnerships? Are we not really talking about the power of the corporates using the governments? Well, that's the impression that we have more and more. If we look at how the government, heads of governments, go to Davos as a pilgrimage and uh, talk to the billionaires, that does really look like it. How the uh, World Economic Forum selects nearly who um, says what in politics and uh, promotes them as uh, young leaderships and so on so the global shapers are the youngest of the groups they are at the university uh, they are picked and uh, then the next ones are the young global leaders who then in multi-year programs including harvard courses and so on um, trained to effectively uh, become uh, important. Merkel was there, Spahn, Macron, Baerbock is there now, um, Blair was there, Brown, the former finance minister of the US, 
and often of them, many of them at very, very early and say he was English, sorry, um, selected very, very early on in their careers. Um, uh, so, um, uh, becoming a family minister was very small, and she was global leader of the World Economic Forum. Um, so, things happen in Davos, like uh, a small Bilderberg, you don't get much of it uh, with the benefit of not uh, being um, conspirative, like Bilderberg has. But the same thing happens there as well, uh, that the uh, government, uh, heads of governments are brought together informally with the heads of the corporates and talk about what they think is important. And if we look at the brochures of the uh, WEF, then of course uh, Schwab um, pins everything on his chest, which is important in terms of global decisions and developments in the back doors in um, Davos between the heads of governments and heads of corporates. You said before that there is going to be a crash. I don't didn't think you use the word, but a pure clean cleansing process, as we've seen it in the world. Um, um, crisis 2009. But if I look that on the other side, luckily we don't have a monolithic power, but uh, conflicting interests. The, Kong, the Chinese have different interests than the Americans, and there's a couple of other figures playing a role. Then they don't really have control of what's happening, but I have what uh, happened in the world uh, financial crisis seen as a control complete loss of control and only after that I was extremely puzzled especially by explanations like you've been given like as Wolf has been giving us I was extremely puzzled afterwards how and why nobody of the main responsible people in the financial industry was stopped and at least afterwards stopped and got the people responsible <clears throat> well it's clear now because the people who didn't do anything else than uh, just hollow words uh, Steinbrück or Merkel saying this is not going to happen because they are full under full control at least that is my impression uh, so far uh, influenced by the people they should control that they don't have any ability to do so yes that's uh, mainly done by the central banks uh, today and the central banks are extremely uh, quickly rotating door with the um, the financial industry that means all central bankers, every important bankers are extremely high paid uh, consultants or top managers of financial institutes. Uh, look at Mr. Weaver of UBS. Um, many examples, massive amounts of examples. The US central bank uh, uh, boss was uh, central bank boss before and then for a couple of years she wasn't anything and uh, got lots of millions for presentations in the financial industry then she became finance minister she controlled the financial industry before she does so now and uh, took a lots of money uh, from the financial industry and she's going to do so again. That's quite typical. 
So this is not a financial interest only. Um, that is pre-selected. Um, who thinks this is right and who doesn't think this is right uh, before um, will get this. Only if you play along, you'll get there. But the monetary interest, is, of course, is massive um, that you have to play along with the banks, with the industry that uh, will give you millions in the end if you uh, play along with their roles. Uh, rules. So that's quite a clear setting of interests here. And uh, if you look at the government and you see how hundreds of millions have been used in order to um, save small and medium sized banks just to not let the system collapse, that shows us what's going on or in the US just as over here. But especially in the US, very clear the banks had many of hundreds of billions of help uh, because of their uh, real estate business with uh, non-credit worthy people they had massive losses and uh, were threatened to break down but that was not given to any condition that uh, they should um, the people who go bankrupt um, had to be um, relieved of their credits no millions of them have been kicked out of their homes and the blackstone um, black rock and uh, financial investor bought them at a penny and um, became the biggest uh, landlord um, of housings in the US within one, two, three, one, two years. The financial industry uh, trapped the people in and got the state to help them out and then made the big profit by buying the cheap homes. And the state really went along. Another example or counter example, and this is what I could think would happen or can happen in the transition because we are in the final game now in the final round because by these massive injections of money by the federal bank uh, keeps it going and it can't be reversed anymore it can't be saved and i think uh, the elites see it the same way that the breakdown is due to happen and that can happen in two ways either the way like 2009 by the state paying or the government's paying for everything or like island did Iceland did. They had three massive banks which did business worldwide. And it's a country, I think, with nearly a million, only a million inhabitants, massive banks that went bankrupt. And then the state didn't give money to them. And uh, that's also because that it would have been much too expensive, so that it wouldn't have been possible. And uh, the others uh, could somehow be. Uh, save with hundreds and billions, but Island can't do this. Uh, so they had the banks go ba bankrupt, uh, pulled the plug, uh, separated what needs to be necessary to keep uh, gyral money going. State went out, gave that to the state, the rest went bankrupt, and uh, nobody got back their money. And uh, that led the British to uh, threaten war on Iceland 
and all legal affairs had to be taken, but it did work out. They won and um, without too much of a problem for the population, they uh, could uh, manage that massive breakdown simply by not worrying about the loss of the capital. And that would be my idea that this crash that is due to happen uh, it doesn't have to become a disaster if uh, one doesn't try to preserve the um, uh, the uh, rights of the capital but just live that go down the drain that's always been my approach the uh, trigger of this financial crisis were uh, these uh, credits uh, these uh, real estate credits which uh, were also pushed into the market um, to people with low incomes in a criminal way, uh, nearly identical to what happened in the US. But, but much, much less, because Germany was um, had a flat uh, in real estate market at the time, while the US and Spain, England, Ireland, where that happened, there was a boom in uh, Germany, nobody expected great increase of values because the values had been dropping for a couple of years and that is why the demand was not so high. That was our luck at the time. Well, that's probably correct for Germany now. Um, uh, concerning Deutsche Bank, which was uh, deeply involved in this uh, um, business as well, um, but they rolled out the red carpet for it in Germany because it's uh, considered as... Um, uh, too big to fail, and uh, then they uh, the real uh, laws, the normal laws, don't apply to them. Um, so too big to fail meant that they um, uh, were protected. But in the US, Deutsche Bank uh, would have been knocked out because they jumped on the bandwagon too late if they hadn't been uh, saved by uh, f f uh, state funds uh, via AIG. Um, that has been hushed up, uh, but, Mr. Herring, in truth, and that's why I uh, think uh, that your approach uh, for a solution is correct and fair, i.e. the Icelandic one, the people who cause it all should have been uh, held responsible, um, and Steinbrück and Merkel uh, shouldn't have only said, oh, this mustn't ever happen. Um, we should have followed up with action uh, then. We can see the result now. If they had been allowed to uh, crash then, then we wouldn't see what we're seeing now. Yes, we're seeing the same thing happening again, that the capital is saved. I'm quoting uh, some of the press titles going in that direction in my book. So and so many billions profit of a couple of banks per quarter due to the uh, packages of the government. And this is not, first of all, for the banks, but it is saving packages for the uh, society and the economy, which helps them to fulfill their duties to the capital. And uh, then usually they are simply pushed through to the banks. The main responsibilities are um, that there is uh, fixed payment um, rent, interests, and so on, no, and no income. And that way, they are helped not having to go bankrupt. And 
the money goes straight back to the landlords and the loaning banks, um, helping them to um, f um, not having uh, to use their risk funding because they thought they would be all uh, bankrupt and then our credits will go default. All that didn't happen because the state pays for it. But there is no action whatsoever, or very, very few only, and only that were in the interest of the capital to uh, saying we give you something, but uh, your obligation to the capital is reduced. Then both will benefit. The capital gets the money that it does is due, which it wouldn't get. And you don't have to go bankrupt and the state doesn't have to pay so much because they need less money. Uh, but what did happen was only a temporary moratorium against uh, cancellation of uh, rental contracts because of no payments, which was in the interest of the capital, because if they had kicked the people out, the prices would have dropped and uh, there would have been the losses immediately while by the moratorium and the government aids that were given, most people are freed and the money goes back to the banks. And uh, so it's the same principle again, just in a hidden way. As we've seen before in 2009, the claim of the capital are the holy cow, rent, interest and uh, loans have to be paid, no doubt whatsoever. There is uh, nothing like force majeure or anything that uh, will um, uh, um, have uh, drops in capital and the state makes sure that this really happens, uh, that the people do pay it. Well, but the, uh, for, against this background, it's important to see that now uh, the state has uh, created a lot more options uh, for action uh, by these um, emergency legislation that we have now due to the pandemic or whatever. Um, so we have to expect this crash, the next one, to be much more massive even without this uh, uh, huge uh, expenditure of money during the pandemic, even before that, the whole bubble was much more bloated than uh, what happened during the financial crisis. So um, it is easier to stop uh, in favor of capital um, by having the state um, having more scope of action, uh, limiting uh, fundamental rights, etc. I don't know if you, if, if a counter movement, um, Iceland style, uh, would have better opportunities to unfold now if it wasn't like um, we're already um, faced with such limited uh, fundamental rights. You know what I'm talking about? You included uh, double negation here, so I'm not sure about the direction anymore. But I can see uh, a good opportunity because I think that the crash will be huge. 
Many things will crash simultaneously, and an attempt is made to avoid it, but I'm, I have my doubts whether this will work. If the entire financial industry cannot be bailed out anymore, and the entire financial system which also uh, involves the uh, stock exchanges and all the uh, the bonds, etc. Then something like a restart is necessary because um, it will be beyond uh, salvaging. Uh, like in 2009, I get the impression that in 2009, the uh, people in responsibility, the elites, uh, to put it this way, Notice, oh, this is going to be uh, bad. And they said, okay, let's uh, give it our all because this was unimaginable until then how much money the uh, central banks can put into the cycle in order to keep things going. This is really extreme by now that the central banks are uh, the main. Uh, suppliers of credit for uh, the um, for the governments those are uh, sleights of hand that will fail in time and uh, so they told themselves okay we'll do this but they know that this can't go well forever and that you can't turn back from it so a situation where you have negative interest rates and um, it's priced into the markets that this will continue like that for decades, then you can't increase the interest rate. But capitalism without interest won't work either. And so this is not workable anymore. And this period of time since 2010 was used to tighten the controls to prepare us for the time of the crash in order to maintain control and uh, to control a uh, population that might have some potential for revolution to keep a control of this. That's my perception. That's what Viviana meant earlier by having these quasi-fascist uh, uh, measures that we've seen by uh, suspending 80% um, of our fun fundamental rights, uh, the controls have been tightened so fast already that we are uh, uh, seeing what is inevitable now. Um, they believe that they have it under control because there are people like us or you who see behind this and by getting this information immediately passing it on we can inform more people about what's happening here but you don't really think need to think a lot mr hearing without being an economist or a business administrator or an um, economics expert you don't uh, you, you uh, can easily see that what happened over the last 10 years is unsustainable this has to blow up in our face because if i just keep printing money without uh, corroborating it um, underpinning it with um, uh, economic values it has to blow up in our faces well, you have to be a bit careful. I would have found it difficult to imagine what's happening right now. And I won't say 100% that uh, we couldn't have uh, surprise inflation that is 
calculated down like in the 1970s, uh, a lot can be leveled out and a lot of monetary uh, assets can be devalued. I think that this is not impossible and we can see uh, the extreme flood of the uh, or that the flight of the rich and super rich into real estate, into real values, uh, creating these natural asset companies and that the US stock exchange that allows uh, to uh, put monetary capital into soil at the end of the day, into land and for the large um, uh, properties for the large assets um, of retail investors, for instance, uh, this creates an outlet. It's always only the uh, top decision makers in the financial industry um, who have their own money, the money of the super rich and the money of smaller investors that's pooled and put all in there and can be used then to exert uh, influence. And that uh, goes to uh, the trillions, uh, all the monies that can be invested here. That's happening right now. Bill Gates is already the biggest uh, investor, the biggest owner of farming uh, land in the US. Other Silicon Valley uh, leaders uh, are doing similarly. All the uh, privatization rhetoric uh, goes into the most analog thing you can think about, uh, into land, into real estate, rather than into bits and bytes. That really indicates where we're headed. On the one hand, of course, that is a good hedge against um, social disintegration. And um, um, if the money is worth nothing anymore, you're still the most powerful uh, person if you have the largest uh, land uh, property, landed property. And of course, it's a good hedge against inflation. Well, Mr. Herring, that's what it's all about, about disappropriation. The question is just who is being disappropriated? Are we allowing ourselves to be disappropriated as before? Or do we make sure that we turn it upside down so Bill Gates is no longer the biggest landowner in the US? Uh, I think that's what uh, what it will uh, boil down to, because it's the biggest transfer of assets from the bottom to the top that we ever had. We've always had feudal societies, feudal lords who uh, had been as vicious as the ones as now, but it's never been as excessive as it is right now. And that's the big opportunity we have to recognize this. Well, it's reminiscent of the pharaohs. In my book, uh, The Social Machine, um, I mean, I, I call it The Social Machine. It's not my term. Uh, in Mesopotamia, four to 5,000 years ago, these social machines were developed where everyone has his role uh, to play like in a machine and is just um, put into his uh, place. And um, it all is used to um, um, produce one end, for instance, to build these huge buildings to make the pharaoh um, immortal. So he already had the mortal power uh, concentrated in his hands, and it's about um, immortality now. So um, uh, the idea was that he would continue to protect his people um, who would continue to walk on Earth. And what do we have now? We have 
so much power concentrated in the hands of the uh, silicon leaders um, it's only power all this money it's got nothing to do with uh, spending money uh, the power is so big that it's not so interesting anymore and now they have to go to space and they're working on immortality they all work on programs of how they can massively extend human life all the way to immortality and that is really reminiscent of the pharaohs well mr herring if we uh, take a look at this power one thing is of course recognizing it the other question is how we can break it how can we reconquer the power from the uh, corporates after all we've discussed uh, my uh, impression is that the only way is to have it via a crash i.e via the icelandic way yes i agree um, but that's why i wrote the book uh, we don't need books in order to promote revolution uh, we'll have to see whether it happens or not uh, we've had uh, this during the world economic crisis as well uh, that the system was curtailed but it, it wasn't uh, fundamentally changed what's important is uh, to avoid to, to take away the fuel that re-kicks restarts this whole uh, system again and the fuel is capital in the sense of the profits of large corporations that are um, then dispersed to uh, individuals um, we have to take the fuel away because otherwise uh, the people um, who own capital who grow ever richer we don't know who it will be but they will have the opportunity again to buy more and more privilege and ensure more and more profit what I uh, would like to see is responsible capital which is actually being promoted by business and politics uh, under uh, the name of a uh, limited company with uh, restricted capital um, I'm thinking more in terms of cooperatives with limited with with uh, restricted capital the idea being that money is not allowed to move out of the company or the co uh, cooperative um, which uh, needs to be used in order to ensure good jobs well-paid jobs to employees uh, to make good durable uh, products for customers to uh, treat customers well that's why it's a cooperative so something that is good for everybody for society and you don't need capital providers for that those companies will compete with each other so competition doesn't have to be capitalism they can compete with each other trying to be uh, profitable but the profits will not be dispersed and then pay, uh, put on some uh, individuals bank account but they are used to for reinvestment in order to make the products better and to make more of them that would be the idea behind it so only to have that kind of company plus companies that are uh, owner controlled they may be different so it's uh, about eliminating um, the non-performing incomes uh, 
Well, uh, crafts uh, companies are the best example. Of course, if, uh, if a craftsman makes a profit with his labor and uh, the company um, depends on the owner, then it's not non-performing income. And of course, you have to create uh, certain criteria, certain size limits that are more or less um, um, deliberate, but um, it's not about uh, abolishing um, companies owned by individuals. What it's all about is to get rid of the large corporates and to uh, disconnect them from the influence of the big capital owners. A, a bottom line, it's a more humane economy. And I think everyone agrees, especially economic uh, people like you that we've talked to, because what we've seen now is a destructive competition. Corporation has to come in here. And I think the best way is the one that you've just shown up away from these corporates, which explode only. Professor Holger Reco from Nuremberg has told you they don't create anything. They just exploit the ideas of the entrepreneurs. So that's where things have to go to entrepreneurs that are responsible for the companies and their employers, employees, uh, away from the global NGOs and the uh, corporates. Yes. Yes, I agree. <clears throat> Well, looking at capitalism, I think um, that's a good way we are. In the last twitches, I think the system is going to self-destruct and we'll just have to take the opportunity to really change it in a way so that it can't slip back into what we've just been coming from when that acute crisis is over and everybody gets back on the blocks. And uh, just as we've heard from Ricardo Lepe, that we need a completely new thinking of economy, of education and training, of all areas of society. But I think it's a great opportunity that we have at the moment. And I do expect we will be able to do this. Let me mention the two books, uh, your two books. Uh, one is called uh, Endgame Capitalism, how the uh, corporates took over power and how we can uh, get it back. And the other one is called uh, Brave New Money. Um, yes, uh, very instructive, uh, Mr. Herring. Very good. I think we're on the same page here. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you very much for your time and your efforts. It's always a pleasure. I I thank you as well. Have a good afternoon. <coughs> thank you and have a nice weekend. <coughs> okay. We are again, we'll go back to the US. We are going to speak to Whitney Webb, who is going to talk to us about Moderna. Whitney, tut uns leid, dass uh, sie so lange warten musste und ich muss mich dauernd entschuldigen irgendwie Time limits because most of the people who we interview are have such interesting stories to tell. Same with the um, journalist who we just spoke with. He is telling uh, or he told us about how this is all going. He's a he's an economist. How this is all going to end in a giant crash and how we will have to make sure that this time it's the other side that's going to have to pay and not us. Um, right. Uh, 
I hope that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's up to us, uh, but we'll make sure this happens through what you're telling us, through what this journalist just told us and uh, what everybody, everybody else is telling us, because it all point, points in the same direction. We do have to change course. We have to take our sovereignty back and we have to hold those who are responsible for this legally responsible. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. Uh, couldn't agree uh, more with what you just said. All so. right, great. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You wanted to tell us, uh, give us some more insights into Moderna. I think. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing an investigative series right now on Moderna. Uh, the third part is not out yet, uh, but hopefully soon it, it will be. Uh, the first part came out earlier this month. The second part uh, just a couple days ago. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially uh, what I, the reason I started looking into Moderna, I guess this late in the game, because obviously they've been essentially a household name since the whole COVID-19 crisis began, um, was because I stumbled upon uh, several articles from uh, US mainstream media dating back to 2016, uh, talking about how, uh, quoting former Moderna employees um, as saying that Moderna was basically a fraud, sort of in the style of uh, wow. Theranos, if you're familiar with that, yes. yeah. um, that it was sort of a, essentially uh, emperor's new clothes was the um, the idiom uh, used to describe it by by some employees. But essentially, they described Moderna as an as an investment firm that hoped that maybe their drug uh, technology would eventually produce something. And of course, that wasn't actually. Um, the case because uh, by the time this critical reporting emerged in 2016, uh, Moderna had been around for six years and had no product to market. And that was still uh, the case in January 2020 um, as well. But what's interesting is that, um, as I point out in part one of my series, all the different um, uh, factors that Moderna uh, was facing that were pushing them uh, essentially to collapse. And as recently as this week, Moderna, top, uh, Moderna executives, including their president, uh, have admitted that at the uh, tail end, the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020, the company had reached the end of the line financially and was cutting everything down and was essentially facing a complete financial collapse, um, which is quite significant because you have a very desperate um, uh, entity at that point uh, trying to prevent uh, what was then the largely most, uh, you know, highly valued biotech company at the time of its IPO, essentially having been built um, on a house of cards, um, which is which is quite significant um, in and of itself. But beyond that, you have uh, the fact that COVID-19 uh, removes uh, all of the uh, multifaceted problems that Moderna faced in, in many different um, realms of its business. Um, and, and that doesn't just include the regulatory uh, hurdles they could never pass, um, but also uh, financial issues and long-standing uh, long patent disputes. Um, and over the course of, of 2020, well, first of all, the way their uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine partnership emerged with the NIH is very suspect um, in the sense that the people most responsible for it, which is Moderna's uh, CEO, Stefan Bonsell, and uh, the head of the NIH's VRC, Barney Graham, um, they... <laughs> said some interesting things um, uh, about why they actually started developing the vaccine before the sequence of the virus was even published uh, by Chinese authorities on January 11th, 2020. Uh, they apparently had begun that at least two days prior. Um, Barney Graham having said, um, 
about a, he visited Moderna's facilities in November 2019. A month later, he sent an email uh, to the head of the coronavirus team um, at the NIH, uh, at VRC, where he, he works, uh, saying, get ready for a big 2020, essentially, uh, when no one else had any way of knowing that there would be a coronavirus involved at that point of time. What was that? Uh, that because was, That was in January of 2020? No, that was December 2019 when he Whoa. sent that email. Very interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah th th there's a lot more to that in the in the second part. Um, I, I detail all of that. What's also what's odd though is that let, you know this partnership officially formed. They say that Bonsell emailed Graham either the January 6th or January 7th, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. But they've given different interviews talking about how. Um, their great foresight and how serendipitous their, their partnership was and all of this to various mainstream uh, media outlets over the past year and a half. And their story changes every time and slight details would suggest that they uh, don't exactly, aren't exactly working from an honest story since they uh, seem to change considerable details. Um, but it, at that point before the sequence was even released, Bansell is allegedly troubled by the, the reports of an outbreak in China. And Graham says, well, I don't know what it is, but if it's a coronavirus, we're ready. Um, and then um, I believe it was a day before the sequence came out, uh, Graham met with the head of Moderna's um, vaccine program and um, essentially said, wouldn't it be cool if you guys uh, started uh, <laughs> diverting a lot of time, attention, and energy into just seeing how fast you could develop a vaccine for this thing and uh, that's that's happening in, in Wuhan once the virus comes out. Um, wouldn't that be a cool thing to do? And per the official story, Moderna's like, yeah, let's do it. And that's why they claim they were ready had already started this like one to two days before the, the sequence ha, um, had even uh, come out. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you consider what has been admitted now, uh, that the company was uh, financially falling apart and the fact that their few remaining investors were completely opposed to the coronavirus vaccine program on, until like March or April um, of, of 2020. Um, so if they're facing collapse, why would they risk alienating their remaining investors and essentially bet their entire company on a vaccine program no one knows they need? Um, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then you also have the added um, account of um, Bansell's visit to the World Economic Forum um, uh, towards the end of January 2020, where he goes on to claim that uh, upon his first day uh, there, he speaks with two unnamed uh, European infectious disease researchers uh, who convince him that this is a, a biblical plague uh, that will, you know, uh, obliterate everything as we know it, basically, um, and that he needed to develop uh, this vaccine for that reason um, and then begins um, uh, diverting even more resources, I guess you could say, and money into that particular uh, program. And this is, of course, before there was really even um, any talk, at least in the public, of um, you know what COVID-19 would eventually become. And mainstream media uh, in the U.S. has essentially boiled this down to foresight and serendipity. But there, there's there's a lot of oddities. Um, you know, I've mentioned a few. Uh, but there, there's more in the article. Another example that? is that Barty. When was this meeting uh, at the World Economic Forum? 
uh, the 21st of January is when he claimed to have learned that it will be this biblical plague. This is mm -hmm. while everyone, all the politicians, all the mainstream media, everyone kept telling the public, this is nothing to worry about. We don't need to take any special measures. No mass, no nothing. And this is also about the same time uh, that uh, Drusden started to work on his, while he was telling the public, don't worry about a thing, started to work on his PCR test. Oh, Very interesting. Strange. Well, Very strange. Yeah, it all seems to line up yes. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, quite well. It but. seems that shortly after that, Biontech, you know, Sahin, this, uh, the, the Biontech um, boss, had uh, also a miraculous insight into like, um, you know, seeing what's coming up in Wuhan and immediately thinking, oh, this is going to be like a global pandemic. And then one day he seems to have looked into the newspaper and then the same day developed 10 candidates for the new vaccine, although he's never <laughs> oh. done that before. You know, it's yeah, also really also strange. serendipitous. I guess. <laughs> and his foresight. That's it's just it. like, did you know that BioNTech never, just like Moderna, had never been able to put together any any yes. uh, product yet, and they were, I should say, in a, in the same dire straits as Moderna was. Yet, uh, Bill Gates, through either Gavi or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I don't know, invested fifty-three or fifty-eight million dollars in that company in, I think, September of uh, twenty nineteen. Foresight. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that Moderna is also a strategic ally of the Gates Foundation, uh, but their partnership, I believe, goes back to twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and uh, Moderna has also been partnered with the World Economic Forum, which I mentioned a bit ago, since 2013, mm -hmm. um, which uh, they're one of their global growth companies, which has uh, given them, uh, per the description of what that means, uh, exclusive access to a special messaging platform uh, to talk to uh, privileged business and public sector leaders. Um, since then, so that's interesting. But anyway, going back to the, the origin story here, one other thing that does stand out that I should mention is that before the sequence was out, uh, the NIH's Barney Graham said, if it's a coronavirus, we know that mRNA has been proven effective. His claim, uh, you know, purported confidence in the efficacy of mRNA at that point was actually based on some prelim very preliminary um, but positive data that have come out about a Moderna candidate in September 2019, uh, but for the CMV virus, and that of course is in the family of uh, like herpes, shingles, chicken pox, not coronavirus. <laughs> There's really no uh, way that that data can be extrapolated to say, oh, we know that mRNA will be effective in a coronavirus vaccine. Um, What's worth noting as well is that Barney Graham and his team at the NIH developed a patent in 2017 uh, for the pre-fusion version of a coronavirus spike protein that's currently not, not just in use in the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, but in uh, several, uh, most, I believe, um, of the COVID-19 vaccines currently in use or that are about to go to market, um, including CureVac. Uh, I believe Johnson & Johnson also uses it and the Novavax one as well. Um, and before COVID-19, uh, as I'm sure you all are familiar with, uh, there was a lot of um, essentially uh, the belief that there would be the development of a coronavirus vaccine at any point in time was sort of a, a pipe dream because since the SARS um, 
uh, uh, the, the SARS uh, incident, I guess, in, in 2003, 2004, yeah. uh, scientists around the world have been trying to develop a, coronavi a coronavirus vaccine without success uh, for a variety of reasons. And so uh, that patent uh, could not be capitalized, could not be commercialized uh, upon unless there was, you know, a coronavirus vaccine developed at some point. So it's interesting that Barney Graham keeps talking about coronaviruses in the lead up to um, the release of the sequence before any anyone could have known uh, it was a coronavirus. Uh, and he just happens to have a patent uh, for that specifically. Um, some doctors uh, like Dr. Michael Palmer and, uh, and Dr. Bhakti, who I know you've uh, had on, have, have pointed out, why didn't they use a toxoid uh, as they call it, instead of, you know, the spike protein itself. Well, that would have also meant not using the Barney Graham patent, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, worth noting. Mm -hmm. um, if they had not used the spike protein as it's used in these vaccines, they would not um, have needed to commercialize that a particular patent that, you know, mm -hmm. these people were very interested in commercializing. And actually, NIH um, documents uh, before COVID-19 uh, were described by NYU law experts as being unusually prescient um, about the importance of Barney Graham's patents in terms of commercialization mm -hmm. at a time when there was really no reason to believe that, at least publicly. This coincides, by the way, with what uh, Dr. David Martin told us, that there were dozens and dozens of patents uh, that um, they had filed for many, many years, like 17 years before the actual corona pandemic, both patents on the coronavirus, including the spike protein, and patents on possible vaccines, obviously. Uh, well, there does seem, in terms of my research on, you know, I haven't looked at every company in this detail, um, but that definitely seems to be the case with Moderna. There is a lot of uh, things going on in terms of patents. What's interesting specifically about Moderna and the patent issue um, is that they license, uh, they have an issue with a company called Arbutus Biopharma, uh, and that technology, which is the lipid nanoparticle delivery system technology essentially, is also in use in the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, but they BioNTech has a license for it. Mm -hmm. uh, Moderna's license um, has been the subject of a lot of controversy because they didn't license it from Arbutus directly. Uh, they licensed it through a company that had a sub-license um, and it's been a long-standing patent dispute ever since. And what's um, interesting is that Moderna, in 2017, uh, had to pivot away from what they had originally told their investors they were going to develop these novel mRNA therapies to vaccines. They did that because they realized using that technology, they could not develop multi-dose therapies because they kept being too toxic to make it to human trials. They were too toxic in animal trials repeatedly. So they made the pivot to vaccines because that requires one dose not multi-dose. So this technology, they weren't allowed to, uh, they realized they couldn't really take anything to market uh, using it that would require more than one dose. And that was why uh, they ended up pivoting to vaccines. And that's also um, at the same point, they partnered up uh, with the NIH, uh, both with Barty Graham and, and Anthony Fauci um, to start developing vaccines with the US government. Um, and before then, it's worth pointing out that Moderna, as well as longstanding times to the US military's DARPA uh, that precede um, the, that partnership with the NIH by several years. Um, <clears throat> 
but anyway, this, this particular lipid nanoparticle uh, situation, uh, it appears that same technology, despite Moderna coming out and saying um, it's not very good, it's bad, and we're not using it anymore because of the controversy that happened then um, in 2017, are in fact using it in their COVID-19 vaccine, uh, which is also uh, discussed in, in part two of my, my series that's now available, and I can go into that if you'd like. From from what product did they pivot to uh, the vaccines? What was the first product? Well, it was a failed product. It was to treat, uh, I believe it's pronounced a Krigler-Nager syndrome or N-A-J-J-A-R. Not exactly uh, <laughs> sure of the pronunciation there. Uh, sorry, because I've only uh, seen it written personally. Um, but it, it was uh, considered the lowest hanging fruit uh, for Moderna to develop an mRNA multi-dose uh, uh, therapy uh, of sorts, uh, and uh, they couldn't do it, and they had to indefinitely delay it. They had partnered to do that with Alexion Pharmaceuticals, uh, which cut off the partnership with them, um, and they uh, essentially had to shelve it indefinitely. It's still shelved. <laughs> and the Moderna uh, vaccine is like two doses as well, isn't it? So then yeah, we would so have the later, toxic aspect uh, here going on as well. So after 2017, they uh, sort of expanded this to be like, oh, well, vaccines can be one or two doses, but it was really anything beyond that um, that they uh, declined to focus on uh, because because of this persistent issue with uh, toxicity in, in, in trials. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially that would apply to anything that becomes, for example, an annual uh, booster dose. <laughs> if it does in fact rely on this technology, which it, uh, it, the evidence certainly points in that direction. And as I mentioned, BioNTech has well, licensed. that's what's going on right now, because in Australia, we're going to show a clip at the end of our session today uh, of some government official who officially announces from now on it's going to be a booster shot every six months. Yeah, well, Chile has announced that as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> let's, see how many let's, let's see how many people will play along with that one then. Because it effectively uh, tells you, in effect, it tells you that the vaccines don't work. Because if a vaccine, if, if a vaccine's um, uh, uh, effectiveness wanes after six months, you begin to question the whole thing, the, the whole strategy that they're uh, driving here. Well, for some people, so in the case of Chile, where they've already announced uh, the vaccine passport will expire for people over 55 that don't get a third dose, they're working on a fourth dose, and it will be at least an annual affair, most likely a semi-annual affair. Uh, there's really very little pushback about that here, <laughs> um, which is uh, unfortunate, but I think a lot of it has to do with um, uh, the media a situation in Chile, uh, every single channel is in complete lockstep about the entire narrative, including the vaccination narrative. Uh, the weather, despite the fact that cases are growing as more and more people um, become vaccinated is being treated as a, uh, you know, the pandemic of the unvaccinated narrative. Um, but this, of course, uh, what they're doing here, like they changed the definition uh, for herd immunity um, and vaccine, if you change the definition of what fully vaccinated means, then you can treat people that have had two doses of the vaccine as 
unvaccinated. And, you know, if they're responsible for the increase in cases, you can then go, aha, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, even though that should technically, to most people, it would mean people with no doses, uh, right? So, <laughs> I mean, it's just, um, uh, they're sort of creating the situation they, they need to maintain that narrative, it seems. It's a gigantic hoax. I was just looking at a picture here, which says, for the first time in history, a medicine's ineffectiveness is now being blamed on those who haven't taken it. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very succinct way of of putting it. Yes, it's um, it's wild. Um, so one thing I do want to bring up with uh, Moderna, though, that I was sort of touching on with this this patent dispute, um, is that um, basically, uh, because of this, it appears. Uh, well, well, basically, let me let me back up a little bit. Basically, Moderna's chief corporate affairs officer made a claim last year uh, that's quite astounding, um, or at least I found it to be astounding. <laughs> um, it, essentially, he said that the NIH, the trials they were conducting um, for the Moderna vaccine last year, um, and, and you know the, the the data of this came out. You know, press releases, lots of positive press for Moderna. Their stock price would surge. Uh, this this uh, Moderna executive claimed that those studies were not using the commercial candidate for the vaccine, uh, that they were applying for emergency use authorization. They were using a different formula uh, for those studies and then touting the data uh, of that um, publicly. Um, and then, but really it was a different candidate that they were seeking to have approved. And that's from a Moderna Act executive himself. Hmm? Absolute, that's grotesque. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense, but I think um, essentially they, they, they've done it because of this patent dispute. Uh -huh. Because they're either using the old lipid nanoparticle technology they say they're not using. Mm -hmm. And the, when he was challenged on that point that look at all these indicators that you are in fact using it, he made that claim. Um, but you know, it really only opens up two possibilities. He's either he's either lying, and that's the case, mm -hmm. uh, or he's telling the truth. And the NIH uh, used something entirely different in co-developing and developing this vaccine with Moderna that wasn't the same formulation as as what was eventually uh, approved under emergency use authorization, um, which is. Um, totally scandalous. Uh, someone has mentioned to me that it appears that BioNTech did something similar, yeah. uh, at least based on uh, what the EMA has said, uh, but I haven't looked into that personally, but I hope someone does, uh, because if so, that's, that's just totally insane, considering the fact that both of those companies, Moderna and BioNTech, uh, could not take a, a product to market previously, and it was really only the unique regulatory and you could also argue media environment uh, that, that emerged um, as a result of COVID-19 was the only way that these could get through any sort of um, regulatory approval. It, it seems, uh, I think this is what um, I remember from David Martin's presentation here. It seems that this may have had a lot to do with the fact that the patents for the lipids were held by a Canadian corporation and they couldn't get yeah, to it. I believe that's Arbutus Biopharma. That's I believe, what it is, or, yeah. or uh, no, that, I think that's Aquidus. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look that up. Uh, but that was the company that sub-licensed it to Moderna. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be based in Canada, but Arbutus, I believe, is now based in Pennsylvania, but I don't know if that uh, was true at the time. I'd have to look more into, um, into that specifically. It looks like a 
the original company they uh, Moderna had licensed it from was Canadian, but yeah. they're not the source of that mm-hmm. uh, patent necessarily. They have a sub license to it because someone that worked for Arbutus later went off and created this uh, Aquitus, Aquitus company in oh. Canada. What what is going on now with them uh, financially? Because there's all these stories coming out that more and more countries are banning Moderna's vaccine because of serious side effects. Right. And you would think as a result of that, market analysts would reduce what they expect Moderna to make in COVID-19 sales. Um, Earlier this year, uh, prospects for 2020, uh, 2022 sales of Moderna's COVID, uh, COVID-19 vaccine was $1 billion. But this week, uh, they're now projected to be $35 billion. That is quite a jump. Why did that happen? I don't know, but I think some of it has to do with something I'll explore and uh, I'll be exploring in part three, which has to do with this particular company that Moderna has partnered with for manufacturing. So they're partnered with manufacturing um, in in Europe with a company. Here is he now. There is the eingefroren. We can't hear you right now. Hello. Hello. Back. Okay, you're back. Hello. Sorry. Am I back? Sorry about that. Okay, so uh, last May, Moderna teamed up with a company called Lanza in Switzerland. And that was a 10-year agreement, essentially focused on their COVID-19 vaccine. So that's manufacturing COVID-19 vaccines in Europe by Moderna for at least uh, 10 years. And that's before there was even any data on the efficacy or uh, put out in the public sphere uh, or safety um, of that vaccine. But more recently, um, just a couple months ago, they teamed up with a company in North America that is very interesting because they have very considerable ties to the CIA. Uh, Not only do they have a CIA, the head of NQTEL, the CIA's venture capital arm on their board, they have uh, Scott um, Gottlieb, uh, who's also on the the former FDA commissioner, who's on mainstream U.S. news uh, quite a bit, uh, is on the board of Pfizer and also Illumina, the gene uh, sequencing company that's uh, seen their valuation also um, explode uh, during this period. The former top executive of the Gates Foundation, um, a former commission member of the 9-11 Commission, why is he there? That's a little odd. And then you also have people uh, directly tied to Palantir, uh, which, uh, if you're not familiar with them, is uh, very much uh, tied to the CIA since their founding, uh, essentially uh, a front for the CIA, I would argue. And my work on Palantir uh, you know, provides a lot of evidence to that point. Um, but it's manufacturing the RNA for the Moderna RNA, uh, Moderna COVID vaccine going forward. And it's She's gone. Wow. Das ist ja ein interessanter Moment, an dem sie uns da wegfliegt. Also Sie erzählt gerade von einer Verbindung Palantine heißen die. Palantir. Ähm, die sie so einschätzt, dass sie eine CIA-Front sind. Äh, das war vielleicht zu hart. Aber das Problem, sehen wir gerade, liegt nicht bei uns. Ähm, wir sind, glaube ich, immer noch gut ähm, vernehmbar und auch sichtbar. 
Das Problem liegt bei ihr. Mal gucken, ob sie zurückkommt. Also sie macht, ähm, sie, sie geht ganz tief rein. Das hat sie ja äh, uns jetzt beim oh, And she's been showing us again before. Now she goes into more detail of Moderna. And in the end, she's confirmed Moderna was done in early 2020. And only the fact that uh, the coronavirus uh, was declared a worldwide crisis uh, pulled them out of the mud. So it's basically the same with BioNTech. They only came uh, into being really with all this. Very, very, very strange. Abyss is opening here. Well, of course, if you have a new uh, product, if you're Roche or Pfizer, and then uh, if you can launch a product that may be problematic, then it might be um, better if I have a startup for the first liability phase, maybe, uh, rather than taking the flag myself, because you never know uh, what will be their long-term relationship. You mean the connection between Pfizer and BioNTech? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And with Moderna, we don't know for sure. Ich glaube, sie auch wieder da. Sind sie wieder da, Whitney? Yeah, my powers just gone out as I was saying that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, sorry about that. I'm still sorry. I'm I'm still here. At least my internet uh, is not based on uh, isn't Wi-Fi. So, <laughs> that saved me here. Yeah. Sorry, so what I was, uh, I don't know if you heard it, uh, that particular company with all of those CIA ties um, and ties to the national security state of the U.S. more broadly um, is is who will now be going forward developing the RNA for Moderna's uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And it's a multi-year agreement. Uh, they have declined to publicly say how many years it's for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, national security state players in the U.S. Uh, obviously see Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine as being something that's going to be sold at, uh, regularly for multiple years to come, given their presence on that board. Uh, what's interesting about this company um, in general, they're called Resilience or National Resilience. Um, they, they also have partnerships with like the government of Canada. Uh, they're essentially seeking uh, to be, um, I guess, the manufacturer in uh, basically doing all of the steps that Moderna had trouble with previously in getting their products taken to market. Mm -hmm. um, They're essentially relying, uh, offering to manufacture all of these uh, mRNA vaccines for them, and then, but, but basically just getting the, uh, uh, the the code, the software code, to to use Moderna's favorite analogy for that type of stuff, um, uh, from a company like Moderna, and then they do everything else, including some of the trials. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if you really want to trust a company with that many CIA ties to be developing um, injections that are increasingly being linked to uh, your participation in society <laughs> and civil liberties and things like that. I mean, it's a really um, wild situation. Wasn't it, uh, wasn't it Moderna CEO who explicitly said that their product can be used to reprogram people? 
Uh, I think that might have been Tal Zaks, the chief scientific officer uh-huh. of Moderna, but that, yeah, they call it hacking the software of life. This is all before COVID. Um, but honestly, a lot of that is hype to sell investors on, I think, mm-hmm. because they couldn't do, they couldn't get mRNA into cells basically without it being too toxic um, to people and causing too many adverse events, essentially. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about like production capacities if they were built up like kind of in advance or is there no hints in that so, direction? So Moderna has claimed that their manufacturing uh, ability was extremely hampered through the first half of 2020 uh, by the fact that they had no money because of this dire financial situation they were facing. Of course, COVID-19 comes at just the right time, sort of as a miracle. Um, to rescue them. They claim it wasn't until BARDA, which is part of HHS in the US government, uh, gave them, I think, $438 million in mid-April that they were able to really even start uh, manufacturing anything beyond what they had sent the NIH. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's another- But somehow in this period of time, oh my God, I am having, Hello. <laughs> we, can, we can hear you. It's uh, just that it seems uh, that you're losing power. Oh, okay. But we can. Okay. Yeah. I. I. Like, yes. It's still out. So. Okay. Um. Sorry. So basically, in um. Uh, even though they were having all these problems, they, they, they claim that's why they had to do so much fundraising over the course of 2020, which includes these sort of uh, insider stock sales uh, they got in trouble for in May, you know, right before that, that was allegedly so they could manufacture uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. But right before that, they create um, this manufacturing agreement with Lanza, the Swiss company, um, and we're building up manufacturing, uh, capabilities there. And of course their partnership with BARDA, uh, BARDA was offering to pay for that and also connects them with, uh, manufacturers in the U S I don't know how true that is. I think it's more, um, them <laughs> several months after the fact, uh, perhaps trying to, um, offer a new reason for some of those insider stock sales and different uh, fundraising efforts um, that didn't necessarily make sense at the time. And some of them were controversial, like the the ones in May um, uh, that they made after this particular press release um, that was based off of this uh, NIH studies where supposedly it wasn't even the commercial candidate um, uh, that they were actually planning to take to market. They used that Uh, the hype off of that, it was incomplete data at the time. I think they released data on just eight of like 40 something uh, volunteers to generate positive buzz around their particular uh, vaccine candidate, even though it was based on uh, the study of something that wasn't their actual vaccine candidate. I just find that so crazy. Um, that definitely really needs to be looked into because the, the fact that Moderna's uh, one of their top executives made uh, that claim is something that can definitely be poked at by people looking to uh, take on these companies and sort of the the legal realm that may very well take away the foundation for their uh eua because if if it's based it on yeah so it, it's dead it's definitely worth looking taking a closer look at this mm-hmm. yeah, no definitely well it depends on how uh, much they say the fda says that the eua rested upon those specific nih studies but it seemed at least in terms of selling it to the public uh it definitely relied on that to a significant degree uh so uh it definitely is uh, uh an important takeaway uh from that mm-hmm. 
Well, very interesting. Uh, all, all of these things are coming to light. Um, that's, I keep repeating this, that's the only good thing that comes out of the corona crisis because we're beginning to see <laughs> all this corruption, all, this, all these criminal activities. And it seems to pivot around these vaccine producers, whoever they really are. But it looks as though there's always somebody else pulling their strings, too. In this case, in the case of Moderna, it seems the uh, national intelligence uh, agencies that are uh, heavily involved in this. Uh, it could be. I mean, you have longstanding ties with Moderna and DARPA, for example, uh, which has a lot of uh, DARPA also it has a lot of ties to like Silicon Valley um, and different entities as well. And now you're seeing Moderna team up with NQTEL um, mm -hmm. and, and all of this stuff. And they also have a longstanding collaboration with um, NIH and, and BARDA. And at the time, by the way, um, that that barda was making these awards to moderna you know they're being overseen nominally by rick bright but rick bright's boss is a man named robert cadlick who i really recommend people uh, take the time to look into um if you are familiar with the dark winter exercise before the anthrax attacks uh the name of that uh simulation derives from something robert cadlick says at those exercises he was intimately involved in that whole um dark winter um nexus uh, and events, and also in what uh, a very interesting timing with the anthrax attacks activities um, as, as well. Uh, but he has a, a very interesting track record in terms of corruption uh, through the years, and uh, also in essentially creating BARDA uh, over the past 20 years through authoring different pieces of legislation. But I don't know how much you all have looked into uh, the simulation that Robert Cadlick led at HHS about a uh, pandemic origi originating in China uh, that took place from January 2019 through August 2019. But um, in terms of that uh, uh, pandemic simulation, the name of the virus they were um, uh, simulating uh, was actually the same name as a virus candidate uh, or vaccine candidate for a particular uh, virus that Moderna was then developing with the uh, the NIH uh, back in 2019. You know what? The evidence is mounting, of course, that uh, this is a uh, long held plan and a long planned um, pandemic. Uh, uh, there's evidence, we, ha we now have evidence uh, that shows us that for at least 10 years, those who are behind this have been planning for this. But there's more evidence that shows us that starting in 2017 or so, maybe a little earlier, but in 2017, they were already producing and selling um, loads of COVID-19 PCR tests and loads of possible COVID-19 vaccines. We're gonna to have to take a closer look at this, but the evidence is mounting that this has been planned for years ahead of time. This is not a pandemic, this is a plandemic. Um, well, uh, in looking at the anthrax attack specifically, um, I think it's quite clear that at least within the United States, there was a plan to sort of usher in what we're now seeing uh, with this biosecurity state. Mm -hmm. There was an effort to do this back then with the anthrax attacks. 
because the anthrax attacks weren't just meant to be what they ended up becoming. Uh, they were intended to, in my opinion, because uh, I've done a lot of research on, on those attacks, uh, go on for several months, maybe even years uh, to usher in this, this new age of not, the invisible enemy aren't, aren't just, you know, terrorists a la uh, war, the war on terror and what that became, but also, you know, the invisible enemy, the, the virus or bioterror specifically. Um, uh, there was uh, an effort, and you see this in Dark Winter, to link, to link you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq to bioterrorism and blame them for anthrax. Uh, but, un but unfortunately for them, uh, it was tied back to a U.S. military source too quickly, uh, and so they couldn't blame it on those external forces. But if they had succeeded in doing that, they had all of these plans ready to go, including DARPA, uh, which I've mentioned a couple times, uh, their total information awareness program had an entire uh, biosecurity component. And a lot of that uh, has been being uh, developed in the US in the COVID-19 era uh, by HHS, um, some of these biosurveillance programs that they had uh, developed and had planned to execute, uh, but were canceled around 2003, 2004 or so. Um, but a, a lot of those policies intended to be implemented in the wake of the anthrax attacks, uh, basically went back to the drawing board or to the waiting room rather and have made uh, their reemergence uh, as we're seeing this effort to create a biosecurity state now. But I think it's quite convincing uh, to argue that plans um, by some of these powers that be uh, to implement this biosecurity state model goes back several years. Um, and maybe the most uh, recent planning stages to do that um, with what has transpired recently uh, may go back to 2017, but it seems like it's something that if you look at the anthrax attacks is uh, uh, predates that even more. Wow. And could you give us a little bit more background information about this Robert Catley? Uh, yeah, well, I haven't written about him since uh, last year, um, and I've done a lot of reports since then, but I do have a very lengthy expose on him that I would encourage people to read um, as part of a series I did on the anthrax attacks and their parallels to COVID called Engineering Contagion um, it, that sort of explores some of the commonalities between uh, the 9-11 era and the anthrax attacks and what's uh, been happening over the past year and a half. Um, so... Uh, Robert Cadlick, uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, um, was the top, what uh, was the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, which basically gave him control over setting uh, the vast majority of COVID-19 policies during the Trump administration, uh, because once Biden uh, came to office, he was, he no longer held that position. Um, but essentially when COVID began, you know, he was doing all of this after the year prior having, as I mentioned earlier, this crimson contagion exercise, uh, simulating that with uh, at the local level, the state level and the federal level and with numerous private companies, um, you know, simulating this, this pandemic that originates from China is a trans highly transmissible flu-like virus that spreads uh, through air travel to other countries in the world um, and things like that. It's, a, it's sort of like event 201 and that it's very closely analogous uh, to what would happen soon soon after. And as I mentioned earlier, Robert Cadlick um, is the person from which the name Dark Winter is derived from the June 2001 Dark Winter exercise that predicted major aspects and, and indeed the entire narrative really um, about the anthrax attacks just a few months before those took place. And at the time, between September 11th and the anthrax attacks, uh, Robert Cadlick uh, was appointed to become uh, the top advisor to the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense about bioterror and anthrax specifically. Um, and he has a lot of longstanding ties um, 
to very suspect individuals, including uh, one of the individuals that I think was most likely actually responsible for the anthrax attacks. It was blamed on Bruce Ivins, but um, my research points to it uh, to it have been uh, to it of ha having been uh, a man named William uh, Patrick III, um, who was a former Fort Detrick researcher and uh, consultant to the CIA, um, uh, FBI, and uh, was working at Battelle Memorial Institute with uh, the former head of uh, a CIA asset who used to head the Soviet Union's, or be the number two guy maybe in the Soviet uh, Union's uh, bioweapons program, uh, who was working for this very sh shady CIA and Pentagon contractor called the Battelle Memorial Institute. Um, which seems to have been a more likely origin for the anthrax than uh, Fort Detrick, which was uh, blamed for it later. Um, but uh, Robert Cadillac worked very closely with all those individuals, as well as the people who authored the Dark Winter exercise. And it's worth pointing out that same, uh, the, the main authors of that, the Johns Hopkins, uh, it was then the Center for Civilian Biodefense Studies. Uh, that is the same Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security as it was later renamed um, that did Event 201. And Thomas Inglesby uh, was the moderator at Event 201, one of the main authors of Dark Winter, um, which also had a lot of ties to Dick Cheney and um, Scooter Libby, his chief of staff. Um, but in that period of time between anthrax and Robert Cadillac becoming ASPER, the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, um, he essentially uh, was working behind the scenes contracting um, uh, and, and working with uh, some of the most corrupt pharmaceutical companies um, in the business uh, and authoring legislation that would eventually result in the creation of the ASPER office. He ended up leading right when COVID-19 hit, uh, which is very, uh, again, serendipitous and and <laughs> and lucky um for him i guess you could say uh but there's definitely a lot to look into into that uh in that particular individual specifically including his ties to a company called emergent biosolutions which was named to be the manufacturer um of uh, most uh well i think a several uh, I, the Johnson and Johnson one for sure, but some of the other COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. were also manufactured by Emergent Biosolutions, and they're the company Bioport that was behind the anthrax vaccine mandates for the U.S. military, and were also partnered up with Battelle. Um, in the lead up to the 2001 anthrax attacks, and it was actually the 2001 anthrax attacks that rescued their anthrax vaccine program. Uh, because the Pentagon in September 2001 was going to cut that company off entirely um, and do the anthrax vaccine program without them. And then a miracle, sort of like what happened with Moderna and COVID-19, uh, comes onto the scene. Uh, uh, it, not a miracle for anyone else, a miracle for this company, uh, because the part of the Pentagon that is working on how to sort of divest from this company is hit uh, on September 11th, 2001. So that report never comes out. Um, and uh, Donald Rumsfeld decides, decides to give them another chance. And then the anthrax attacks happen and all these concerns about its safety, um, uh, among other things, specifically safety, because it was actually uh, linked by some very credible people to Gulf War syndrome, among other things. Um, uh, they essentially, uh, calls uh, to investigate this company and replace with calls for more anthrax vaccine after the anthrax attacks, essentially. Uh, and Robert Cadillac is a key figure in all of that and also um, Operation Warp Speed um, and a lot of the other things that came out of the Trump administration's response to COVID-19. Which company was, which company's uh, um, documents were destroyed in this, uh, or the, the report on these, the, the shenanigans that were going on? like in uh, in the in the attack 
Was it emerging biosolutions? They're, they're called emergent biosolutions today, but they've only been called that since 2004. Um, before that, they were known as Bioport, uh, and they're sort of a combination of a, the port and Bioport is uh, for porting down, <laughs> uh, sort of the part of, uh, I guess, the Fort Dietrich equivalent of the UK that was spun off and privatized. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting company to look into. I can forward you that, um, that those articles I did on them, but that was um, uh, last year. But essentially, it was uh, the Pentagon was working on a plan to how uh, basically how to carry their anthrax vaccine program forward without this company, even though they were the only anthrax vaccine producer uh, in the United States at the time. And so the the report, the plan, the people writing that report and developing that plan, uh, their infrastructure in terms of like computers and stuff were hit on 9-11. Wow, that's, that's very convenient. A, it's a miracle. Amazing uh, connections. Yeah. We'll uh, have to take deeper looks into all of this, uh, but we will very soon be talking to someone who participated um, in this exercise, this dark winter exercise. And we're ah. really very much looking forward to talking to this man. <laughs> all right. That'll be interesting to see. Can I ask who it is? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, wh what's his name? Corvin knows it. Corvin, can you write it down? Jim something. With a B. Yeah, I was going to say Jim Bailey, but that's he, not, he not was, his name. He was, in, he was already like at some point he wanted to uh, be on the show already. Yeah. And then he had yeah. some. It's uh, but either next uh, Friday or the Friday after that, he'll be on one of our sessions. I have one last okay, question. The, the, oh, mm -hmm. the, what does uh, what's the what's the business um, aspect that uh, Moderna and Incutel are working on together? Uh, okay, so it's not, it, what it is, is it, it's a manufacturing agreement Moderna has made to produce its RNA for its mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 with a company um, called Resilience. And on the board of that company is the CEO, the head of NQTEL, Chris Darby. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but in addition to that, the NQTEL is very directly tied to the CIA. Uh, you also have Palantir uh, people on the board and Palant or ties to Palantir co-founders. And one of the main fi uh, funders of this company is Joe Lonsdale, Palantir co-founders, a uh, venture capital firm. And Palantir was essentially created uh, by the CIA with the cooperation of Peter Thiel. Um, that's really where that company comes from. I, I can go into more detail about that maybe another time because I know that you have another guest. Uh, waiting. Say, did you say with the cooperation of Peter Thiel? Yeah, he's. he's uh, yeah, he's, well, Peter uh, Palantir was nominally created by Peter Thiel, Alex Karp, Joe Lonsdale, and I think one other guy. Um, but it was with NQTEL funding and the CIA guided their product development and was their first client for like their first and only client for their first six years as a company. And oddly enough, um, the CIA point man in developing uh, Palantir's product was a man named Alan Wade, who had developed Homeland Security software with Robert Maxwell's daughter and Ghislaine Maxwell's sister, Christine Maxwell, uh, in the years prior to that. Um, which is uh, just an, a fun fact for your audience, a uh, little weird. Um, but Palantir is something very closely tied to the U.S. national security state. Their software is currently used by every single U.S. intelligence agency, uh, many corporations, uh, but really the entire U.S. national security state uses it. Um, and they've also been placed at the center of harvesting COVID-19 data, both in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. 
Okay. Well, Whitney, it was a pleasure. <laughs> we learned Thanks. a lot. I'm sorry about my no, power no. issues. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, this uh, has not really distracted our attention from what you're saying. It was just a brief pause, but we're fine. That's cool. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, Whitney, yes. thank you very much Incredible. again. Thanks so much. Thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take okay. care. Take, take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, now we're going to change course again, and we will be talking, we're, we'll turn our attention to economic issues again with Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, he's an economic researcher and futurist specializing in energy and resource depletion and founder of Peak I'm sorry, peakprosperity.com. Um, he will tell us a few probably not so nice facts about um, the uh, fact that we're facing a worsening supply chain problems, etc. Um, hello, Chris Martinson. I think, may, are, you, are you still mute? Can you hear me now? Yeah. Now I can hear you, yeah. Ah, yes, very good, very good. Uh, v Gates, uh, well, <laughs> under the circumstances, we're doing okay, or right. pretty good actually, because we're beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's always good to be able to see through what uh, we consider fog that was uh, meant to dilute, or rather to um, confuse us. But uh, that's mm. the that's the one positive thing about Corona. We're learning all these things. We're learning all the. Uh, we are uh, beginning to realize that the system that we're living in is totally corrupt and we're going to have to restart not this system, but a whole new one. Exactly. Exactly. I, I agree very much. And thank you for having me on. It's a real honor. You've been doing extraordinary work all the way through. Um, I, and I know it's very difficult to get messages out with all the shadow banning and the yeah. censorship. And because yeah. I, I, I run into that myself all the time. And you can feel there's a, a state, a, a, a system that Whitney was just talking about that's nudging us. It wants us to think certain things and not think other things. And mm -hmm. I feel like we're being treated like children, you know, yes. not adults who are part of a conversation we ought to be having. Uh, in particular, you know, my work looking at resource depletion, I'll tell you, we're facing some really serious, serious predicaments, mm -hmm. right? A problem has a solution, but predicaments... They just have outcomes you have to manage, which means we need to make important decisions, right? So um, that's where I see the world right now. And, you know, Whitney was just talking about what I guess was the figurative dark winter. Mm -hmm. Europe's now facing a literal dark winter, right? Mm -hmm. Because of energy issues and supply chain issues. And it's being blamed on logistics or labor or this or that. But truthfully, it was just a gigantic failure to plan. Back in March of 2020, I was pointing out that there were going to be supply chain issues because of the impact of Corona on manufacturing. We'd had a profound failure to invest in, in energy uh, production that started in 2016. Mm -hmm. That's hitting us now. So all these reasons, you know, that they're being given in the media, they're all wrong. They're, they're all childishly wrong. And they're not hard to explain, but for some reason, we never get the right context. Uh, the media and the state seem to come together and want us to not really understand what's going on. So, so that's the approach I take to all of this is to look at the big picture and try and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. So what's gonna happen in Europe? 
Well, uh, at present with natural gas stores, it's roughly 70% of where they ought to be at this point. There's a chance that they could dip below certain critical levels that would cause certain countries who are, have transit gas pipelines to not transit the gas anymore. So we could see a political fracturing because of course, politically, it's very hard to explain why you would let gas transit through your country while your own citizens are freezing. So um, that probably won't happen. Uh, we're, we're definitely gonna see uh, shortages, blackouts, Things like that are, are for sure coming. There's another prediction that's easy to make, which is looking at the fertilizer manufacturers who are now shutting down because they can't afford to buy the gas to use the Haber-Bosch process to make ammonia-based fertilizers. Without the fertilizer, the next growing season is gonna be very skimpy. Um, the fertilizer in many cases needs to go down in fall sometimes or at latest in spring. So if that manufacturing doesn't get re resolved in some way, we're going to see massive, massive increases uh, in prices, but if not physical, literal shortages leading to reduced harvests. So, and again, all of this is eminently foreseeable. And uh, for whatever reason, the system decided not to foresee it. I mean, every, that's why I focused all of 2020 and most of 2021 on just COVID research, because it's a story when you see how badly the authorities behaved, how corrupt the system is, a corrupt system has no chance of dealing with a predicament appropriately because a corrupt system, the participants, they act in their own self-interest. So in my country, Anthony Fauci, all he cares about is a few more dollars coming to his buddies and his minions. And he's got a little power of control about how he hands out grant money and how people are rewarded with plum directorships and on boards of pharma companies. It's, it's a whole corrupt little ecosystem. And they couldn't even get out of their own way to do the right thing to provide early treatments in which would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Eh, wasn't worth it. So when you have that level of corruption, say at the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, right? With the FDA just, you know, advisory panel saying, oh yeah, vaccines for kids, seems good. <laughs> With only 1500 in, in the uh, trial, there's no way you could get a safety signal out of that. And still 17 of them said, yeah, let's do this, right? So that level of corruption, that exists in every other department. And so the Department of Energy just has the same difficulties they can't mention the words peak oil. They can't bring themselves to talk about where we really are in this larger resource energy story. And what's interesting is when I talk with people who are very high level in China, they understand all of this. They have no mental blocks against talking about reality as it is. They understand completely where we are in the resource story when it comes to everything from copper to lithium to indium to oil, particularly to natural gas. China's all over the world scouring for those resources. And we can't even figure out how to properly record a COVID death. It's just, it's a ridiculous situation. So the prediction for Europe is it's gonna get messy. And I think people ought to be individually resilient and prepared for that. And there's a lot of things people can do. Mm -hmm. That's the important part because that gives us a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Some mm -hmm. things that we can do. Well, my light at the end of the tunnel is, is this has started to wake people up again. And uh, I found out who the uh, intellectual frauds and moral cowards are out there in this story. And there's a lot of them. 
And we've also found out who's burning bright, who stood tall and who we can really trust and who has integrity. That's wonderful. I know the doctors all over the world who have integrity. I know the, the business leaders who have integrity and they're rallying, right? And that's what we really need to do. So I like, the, I like that. Uh, and I love that I get to interact with people who, who get it and who care and are genuinely helpful. And we're going to need each other a lot in these coming times because, you know, as I mentioned, we've got some really serious things that we have to resolve, very complex systems. And to listen to how Whitney puts all those pieces together is just brilliant. Mm. And what I, I interact with people who exist at that level from time to time, and they're just people. And they don't understand complexity theory or systems thinking, which means they actually think they can control a complex system and you can't. The science is very clear. Complex systems have what we call emergent behaviors. You, you do some things, but then things happen you didn't quite anticipate. So that's what's happening with the energy situation right now. It's a very complex system of breakdowns that are happening. Uh, it's a very high chance, not zero anymore, that we could see a cascading series of failures, which are um, best explained in, the, in that old, uh, that, that little ditty, uh, the, the little aphorism about, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. That's sort of a cascading series, but it's linear. We have an economy where because of a chip, a machine couldn't be made. Because the machine couldn't be made, this product couldn't be produced. Because this product couldn't be produced, the chips can't be made. Like we have these circular feedback loops, very complex, very difficult to control. And um, I think we should have had some better appreciation of the fragility of those systems, as well as um, too much focus on being cost-effective and efficient and cheapest products, which means businesses ran really lean inventories without a lot of depth or resilience. And because of that, you know, supply chain shocks are, are amplified. You know, the leaner the inventories, the greater the supply chain shocks. You get these standing waves of order and, and supply demand mismatches. So, that's where we are. It's going to take a long time to resolve. And that's only if things go well. If things go badly, one of these circular loops bites us. Um, and we find that we have a very difficult problem, if not predicament, on our hands. So what do you do about that? I think, uh, <laughs> so all through 2020, I, I, had all, I was just doing COVID, right? I was just reporting on COVID. And, uh, and at the end of every one of my videos, I would end with, hey, plant a garden, right? Um, and so... For over time, people thought I was running a really weird guerrilla gardening channel. But my point in that was individual responsibility, individual resilience is how we get through this. And people need to have the ability to be individually resilient. So with this energy crisis in Europe, hey, you know, it's time to buy sweaters. It's time to turn the thermostats down. It's time to insulate uh, your home. It's time to make leaky windows, not leaky. There's a lot of things we can do. But my view is, if we want to be resilient as a country or as a globe, well, you need, that's fractal. It all begins with resilient households, and then we need resilient communities. And so 
the most important thing I tell people is that it's time for us to begin to get to know each other again, to help each other, to um, really live in community, which I know, uh, I think my country does a less good job at on average than, than a lot of Europe does. I know that in Germany, you have a much stronger appreciation for nature and the importance of nature and uh, treating it well. And, and that I think is, is, a, is gonna be a big determinant as we go forward. Uh, because I track many things about resources. And one of the most alarming statistics I have is about the loss of insects. It's just, it's, it's, it's grief inducing. It's so terrible. Um, and so if we don't begin to manage ourselves as a species in alignment with living within our various budgets, we have an ecological budget. We're way over it. We have actual fiscal budgets. We're running deficits that can never be paid back. Never, right? Getting 0.3% on Italian bonds when Italy's, you know, a few hundred billion euros in, in debt, it'll never, it, it can't, Italy would have to pay back, I don't know, 250 billion euros a year for 10 years to even begin to approach paying down its debt. It won't happen. Um, and so that's my larger message here is that the, the kind of economic growth that all of our financial money, our markets, our stocks, our bonds, derivatives, currency itself, all are just claims on wealth. And wealth isn't those things, they're claims on it. Real wealth is the wealth that comes out of the land and how people transform that into goods and services. So based on that, it's very easy to sort of look at this, everybody knows this on some level, that the debts we have right now fiscally, they, they can't be paid back. The unfunded liabilities, which are beyond debts, a liability being an underfunded pension or endowment or um, underfunded uh, retirement plan of some kind or um, social, social plan. The degree to which those are underfunded in the United States right now is around $200 trillion. How would you ever make up a shortfall of $200 trillion? Well, your economy has to grow a lot. Well, how do economies grow? Well, they use energy to grow. It's really tightly linked. More energy equals more economy. Is there enough energy to grow out of a $200 trillion hole? Nope, not unless somebody comes up with some weird alien technology or something, but it's not, we don't have it. So then the only question left is, well, if those, if those funds can't be paid back, who's gonna eat the losses? That is the scramble that's going on right now. And it begins to explain what the WEF is up to, the, you know, the whole Davos crowd. It begins to explain, I think, many of the lockdowns. It begins to explain a lot of things that fit through that lens of understanding that we're not going to pay those debts back. There have to be losses. The population generally doesn't like to have losses forced on them. So there has to be another explanation, another reason that's at least part of this explanation for me right now. And um, but in order to, um, you know, that we can maybe take a closer look at all these supply chain problems and, all, and really can, uh, you know, really get into the position of do, doing something against it, against them. Um, the, this whole house of cards has to come down and this pandemic has to end. I mean, that's in itself a, a narrative that's, um, you know, that has a lot of, um, instabilities and problems you know the same thing as you described this complex system that we have of like international inter interdependent uh, 
interdependencies in the interdependencies and all that um, that's true for the this whole official narrative as well you know if I mean one of the major pillars of this house of cards is going to come down you know um, like say more and more um, and un, um, unstoppable more um, people with vaccination damages come up and sort of the the public opinion changes against the whole thing they're not playing along with it anymore and maybe don't believe in the idea of another virus or whatever the the 10th wave or so then um the this whole um um, do you know, crowd that is pushing in that direction, as we can see, I mean, what Whitney Webb also said, it's the same story all over, the same definitions. It's it's really mm. a, a lockstep constellation around the world, maybe with a little bit of delay in the countries, you know, relative to one another, but it's the same thing. So do you think that um, this whole system that's so elaborately put together is also on the verge of breaking at this point? Or, what do, or do you think it's all going according to plan? Mm, I think it's 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 both. Um, I think there is a plan. I think the plan's going to fail because I think the planners of the plan don't appreciate how complex systems actually work. And complex systems in nature, they owe all of their complexity and their order to the flow of energy. So let's take the biggest complex system there is, the whole Earth. Right? It's just a glorious thing. We have octopuses and giraffes and crazy beetles, the color of, of, of metals. It's, it's just an amazing, beautiful symphony of complexity, all because we have a constant daily output of amazing energy from the sun. If the sun went dark, if that energy went away, the earth becomes a lot simpler, boring, dead, icy ball very quickly, right? So I think we can appreciate that at the super big scale that because of the energy from the sun, the earth is this amazingly complex thing. Great. Now let's say the economy, it's this beautiful complex thing, as you said, with these interdependencies, we have this huge global web where even the technology we're using now, the computer and the camera I'm talking to you through, they probably traveled 30,000 miles each as they were constructed from the sand that went into the chips to the components that were manufactured, and built here and shipped there, 30,000 miles for that one thing. And so that's beautiful complexity. It owes all of that complexity, just like the earth, to this input of energy. This is fossil fuels. This is oil in particular. Still, you look at flight tracker, all the planes in the sky, all of them are up there because of oil right now. You look at shipping traffic, marine traffic, you look at all the container ships on the ocean, thousands of them. All of them are moving because of oil at this point in time. So that's our dependency right now. And as many gains as we've had with alternative energy, when you really look at the numbers, and I could show you charts and data and all this, which says, yeah, they're growing fast, but they still are just a thin smear at the top of our total energy use, a thin smear, almost like you have to squint at the chart to see them compared to oil and gas and coal, which are still 80% of the total energy mix. So when we look at that, we are now at a really critical phase as a species, not as Europe, China, US, as a species, where for the first time in our species history, we're facing a leveling off of the amount of energy that we're able to extract, our primary sources of energy. And that's starting to nose over. That's what this next 10 years is about. It's a very awkward period of time. It's gonna take extraordinary planning, 
sacrifice even. And I believe we could do it, but we have to have the right narrative. So I love the way you put that, the story about COVID, it's breaking down. We're finding out that even in a sort of poorly treated fashion, it has an infection fatality rate of around 0.2%. And it's, that's clustered mainly in elderly people and mainly elderly people with a lot of comorbidities. If you had early treatment, I bet we could get that down to 0.1% or less. Um, and then we would find it's like the flu. And the question is how many rights should you give up and how many dreams should you give up and should your businesses be closed and should your children be you know, frightened and maybe traumatized all to uh, because of that. And by the way, if we are gonna cower and quake at a 0.2% or maybe a 0.1% infection fatality rate, what are we gonna do when these really big problems and predicaments come that could be far more damaging? Are we gonna just, you know, crawl up and, and you know, wait for our leaders to save us? No, that narrative's breaking down. It's breaking down big time here in, in my country. People are beginning to wake up and not, not a minute too soon because we really have to get citizens back involved in our overall solutions. And I'm a huge believer that the days of, of centralized control and power are over. The CDC, it's not as smart as all these people who run blogs that I know, who go through the data and come to conclusions and make the right choices months ahead of giant multi-billion dollar you know, uh, organizations. So that's the genius of, of what the internet has given us. And it's the genius of, of real democracy where the people actually are faster, smarter, more nimble, such as yourselves coming to the, figuring this stuff out way faster than the official narrative. But once people realize the narrative is broken, it's a very dangerous time. And uh, that's why I think the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, they're printing money like crazy printing. They, and they know that when they do that, it just mostly goes to billionaires and makes the rich even richer. And that's socially corrosive. You know, as Plutarch said thousands of years ago, the oldest and most fatal ailment is, of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. So they're creating this gap, but they don't know what else to do except print more, you know, and that's just that's just what they do. That narrative, they're afraid if people catch on to that narrative and it breaks, then our markets break and financial systems break and then things break and they're afraid of that. Politicians are afraid that if their narrative, if they get caught out for having lied about vaccines, vaccine injuries, herd immunity, all of that when that narrative breaks, they're afraid that their political institutions, their parties, their careers will break. It's on and on and on, but the, the issue that you're up against and, and that you know I think is, is just absolutely right is the story is wrong. We have the wrong story. And when people have the right story, I have huge faith they'll do the right things, absolutely. But when you have the wrong story, you can't, you prop it up as long as you want, but the, a wrong story will lead your business to fail, It'll lead your marriage to fail. It'll lead you to fail. Bad stories lead to bad outcomes. We're just running a, a story that just doesn't make sense on COVID, but that's a mirror of this larger story that doesn't make sense economically. And I know that's frightening for some people, but it's just reality too. And so is what it is. We have to, we have to get a clear picture of what's really going on. You're right. Um, if we're following the wrong story, we're not going to have 
the right responses. It's 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 only logical. Um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the right to know about your um, uh, a physical condition. It's uh, it's about um, it's a um, comparative uh, law thing. I looked at what was going on in the United States and in, in those states that had already um, agreed to a what is now called a um, uh, durable power of attorney for health care. California and Oregon, I think they were the front runners there, uh, while we didn't have that. Um, and a lot had to do with the problem that people did not want to see what was really going on with their health. But you do have to know what's going on, even if it's terrible, because if you don't, you cannot react accordingly. Your response is always going to be wrong. And that is true for every walk of life, more or less, for every, for e economics in particular, I guess, um, because this is, we can see right now what's going on. The system is breaking down. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so it well said. And um, here's an example. So I, I get into these debates often with economists, um, and I'm not an economist, but you know I play one on the internet. Um, but but I talk with them, and they have this underlying assumption, this dogma that sits under their entire profession. Everything is built on top of this one assumption, and this assumption is you can grow forever. Yeah, which is obviously well, wrong. It's obviously wrong. Yeah. Right. And but when I try and debate them on that, they they say, no, no, we're going to take that off the table. We want our debate with, with that off the table. It's like, you can't take that off the table. It's your, it's your primary um, error. And everything on top of it built off of an error is an error. So infinite growth, that's what economists are trying to achieve. And that's why we've seen trillions and trillions of euros and dollar printing, because they're just trying to keep, they need growth. You know, <laughs> it's, it's so wedded into their ideological dogma that if, if you go backwards, they call that negative growth, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. So, so how do we go about changing this narrative from your perspective? What do we, what do we do here? How do we wake people up? Um, I think the only way is to educate people, to bring out the truth, to get them to understand the real facts. Uh, the funny thing is, it's not funny. It's, it's eerie um, that, even though much of what we're discussing here in our sessions are so obvious, they're right in front of your face, <laughs> they're in your face. Uh, some people seem to seem to find it more comfortable to just sit back and wait until the government tells you where to go, what, what the next step should be, instead of taking responsibility in our own, in, in our, into our own hands. I think you're right. We have to get people to not just sit there and wait, but to get involved to take responsibility for their own lives. It starts in our families and then it goes on into the communities because that's, we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, Wolfgang Wodak, who is the guy who, um, Dr. Wolfgang Wodak, who is the guy who uh, stopped the swine flu, which was their first attempt at this plant, plant, pandemic, pandemic. Um, he's been, and he's, he was only capable of stopping that and, uh, and uh, tearing down the other side's mask so as to show that it was just a mild flu. He, because he had the power, he was then in a position, uh, he was a member of the German parliament and he was also a member of the Council of Europe. 
Um, but he's right from the start of this Corona committee. He's been telling people we have to re we have to think regionally. We have to take our sovereignty back from these supranational global corporations, uh, NGOs, the Davos clique. We have to be responsible for our own lives. And that has to mean that we have to get involved. We can't just sit and wait for other people to make the decisions and tell us what to do. I mean, the problem at this point in time is that uh, you have a lot of people who have um, also emotionally invested a lot into the narrative. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe if you weren't able to visit your, your dying mother uh, due to these, uh, you know, restrictions, then um, if you now have to realize, oh, maybe it was not necessary to begin with, then it's very hard to, to face up to that. And it leaves you with a lot of guilt. Why didn't you speak up? Why weren't you more aggressive when the situation occurred? And um, so I think, um, it's, and it's also, it's, I think, of course, it's, it gives you a lot of, or can give you a lot of fear, you know, that you have to realize, wow, um, maybe it was uh, like uh, financial interest driven what happened here, or like there were other reasons than just health, um, health aspects, you know, that led to that uh, horrific, uh, you know, pandemic response uh, constellation. So I think it's, um, it's, it's tough to people to wake up. But then we see also a lot of people who are now having serious doubts and also in the, you know, the, the ministries, the, uh, you know, of uh, like the government, there's more and more people coming out, there's more and more um, doctors and, you know, people with influential positions who say, I can't, cannot bear this any longer. And I think there's a lot of, of uh, there's a lot going on. And I think um, it's, it's going to become like more and more obvious in the next few weeks you know yeah. that it's it's really especially when they're starting to because that's what they have to do to do it over again because basically once they let loose you know the ends of this this um, package that they've tied or you know then um, it's all gonna unfold and you you're gonna see what's what's going on that it wasn't necessary because once you let go all the restrictions and nothing serious happens I mean, you know, people are going to have more and more questions. So I think they're under a lot of pressure and um, the time is working, like I think for us. Yeah, but there will be, there will probably be a gigantic crash. Uh, the big question is, um, how do we deal with it? Can we, and I think the only way to go about it is by doing, by following your advice, by, um, as, what was your mantra? Uh, plant your own garden? Something yeah. like that. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. We have to make sure that we connect with the farmers in our region so that we can we, we are not dependent on global supply chains anymore. This will not work overnight. We will have we will have some serious problems as far as energy is concerned, probably just as well. Um, I know I have a fireplace in my house, but um, how long is it going to last? I mean, the wood that it takes, um, you have to think about these things. But the most important problem, I think, is that one, there's two things. One, we cannot wait for everyone to come on board because there are a lot of people out there. I hope it's not the majority of the people, but a lot of people out there who will not want to face up to this. They they don't want to know these things because it shatters their whole world view. They don't they don't they can't come to grips with the fact that we've been lied to by our own by our own governments and the mainstream media, whom they have trusted. The public here in Germany, the 
public media are very powerful, um, and many of the uh, many of the people of the older generation, um, they just they can't fathom that they're being lied to. So that's problem number one. And uh, the uh, the other problem is that um, uh, we may not uh, or. Some people are afraid that we're not fast enough, that we have lost so much time that there's nothing to save anymore. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's never too late. You know what? I, I also think that it's um, there's even more to gain now, because um, if 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 it hadn't been like this, you know, we would have maybe been able to do some some small adjustments, you know, for like a little bit of a better world. I mean, maybe cut down on whatever this hedge fund investments, you know, make these illegal or something like this. But but now that people are so as a whole, so many people are asking a lot of questions now and also having brought forward a lot of really good ideas, how we could different, yeah. you know, design life, uh, our social life differently. Like we had this guest um, earlier, you know, who had um, has good ideas about like new schools, um, like whole different system of learning and, you know, giving like producing an atmosphere where people can create ideas. And I think there's so many ideas out there already. So we just have to bring all this together. And then in this aftermath or like while it's going down, we can already set up quite a bit of, of a new society, you know. And I mean, for instance, when we see there's a supply chain problem because of transportation issues, let's say that's the, the, the narrative, then we can already like you know, come together and see how can we uh, organize transportation maybe in a better way, you know? Like, I mean, already with the ones that are now working locally and organize ourselves to get, to get you know, overcome some of these problems. Of course, not all of them, but I think it's really giving us, um, you know, opening up a lot of chances. Exactly. So much, so much uh, wonderful things said there. And, you know, I, I started my whole career on a scientist, so I brought a lot of data um, and I realized early on that, that most people don't change their opinions or their minds because of data, because it's not, it's, it's a, it's a belief-based process. So beliefs, I had to do this whole tour through behavioral economics, behavioral evolution, um, looking at uh, psychology. Uh, I understand mass psychosis now and long story short, it, it turns out that as humans, we tend to the short circuit. Uh, that nature has given us is to form a belief system. And it's stored down in our, we don't have one brain, we have a three layered brain. And the deepest layer is very reactionary and it's where our emotions are housed. And it's where nature said, yeah, we'll just record um, you know, the operating system down there and the rest are sort of add-ons. And so I understood early on now that, that to really be effective and influential in talking people, particularly who are invested in a belief system Data, it's not a data conversation we're going to have. It's not like we give them slightly better data, they process it, and now they think something new. Always, including for me and for you and for everybody listening, for everybody, once you have a belief system, to change it is always an emotional, not an intellectual process. And so understanding that um, is really, really important. So, so I know that there's a lot of people out there who are very um, I call them deluded. There's these doctors, you know, that are literally killing their patients yes. because they refuse to look at the early treatment data. And this is going to be a really hard moment for them to come to grips with that. And maybe they won't be able to while, you know, in this lifetime. 
But for now, my message to them is, listen, I think you have this wrong. Uh, and when you, when you are ready to see it another way or when, or when you come to a different conclusion, I'll be here. We can have a conversation. I'm not going to rub your nose in it or spend time telling you how wrong you were or shaming you. I understand that I have to be as compassionate and as gentle as I can because many of these people, I think we're all built differently. I think I'm built a way. Maybe you're built the same way. I don't know. But, but me and my tribe, we're built in a way where we're able to take new information, floods of it, and change our minds. And it's kind of a, I think it's a, a weird bell curve sort of percent of the population. But for a lot of people, they're not built that way. And, it's, and the operating system is you take your instructions from the tribe, from the larger, you know, from, from society. When that's wrong, and it's not just wrong, but it's wrong in a way that actually causes you to behave in ways that are morally indefensible. It's exceedingly psychologically difficult to face that. And I think there are going to be a lot of people having to face that. I have a lot of compassion for the pain they're going to go through. But in my country, my best guess is 80% of the doctors are going to have to face that at some point in time. And Same it's, it's Same in tragic. this country. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, um, that's part one. Part two of all this awesome stuff that's being talked about here is that, that the carrot and the stick, we can't, we're never going to shame people or berate them into this side. We have to, it's like Buckminster Fuller said, you never change an existing system by tinkering with it. You build a better model and you make the old one obsolete. Yes. So this old model is already obsolete by the numbers. How many f overweight? Uh, unhealthy people on, you know, psychotropic drugs do we have? It, it's just astonishing. I was hearing, I uh, think if I might misremember the numbers, but I think Belgium has 13 million people and they consumed 300 million doses yeah. last yeah. year mm -hmm. of, you know, um, of uh, SSRIs and other antidepressants, right? Mm -hmm. So you could just look at that as a, as a Martian and say, we can do better, right? And people want to do better. We want lives of meaning and purpose and connectedness. And so there is, there's a better life in front of us, all of this, but it begins with um, enough people saying, not this, I'd rather have this. And so that's where I'm putting more of my energy is how do we, how do we, how do we model this? How do we show this so that um, people can see uh, there is, there's a better life out there, but let's, let's have a country of 13 million people with no antidepressants needed. That would be a better goal. Yeah. And I think it's within reach right now. That's the, uh, you know, it's um, the fact that uh, COVID is um, more or less shaking up society is also probably a good way to wake up many people. Not, uh, not everyone can be, can be awakened, but um, more and more people are awakening and that's what they're afraid of. That's what, what the other side is afraid of because they're not fast enough to stop this and they have run out of options. They have exhausted everything, all of their means. They can keep printing money, but even that is now probably completely fruitless. It's not gonna help them anymore. So I agree with you, um, there's no no reason for despair we should be we should be glad that finally our eyes have been opened because up until this uh i mean i have known for quite a while through my job um having to go to court uh um, working for basically uh, consumers and small and medium-sized uh, corporations i could see how 
corporations, large corporations, which are usually fraudulent corporations, like Deutsche Bank is one of the worst, uh, or VW, I could see how they were under special protection in the courts of law. But I didn't put the dots together. I kept trying to think, well, maybe you, my colleague, Catherine, maybe you should wear a different dress or you should put on a different suit or maybe we should get another expert opinion from one of the universities. No, that was not the point. The whole system was rigged and now we can see it and now we can change it. Yeah, and that corruption is, um, it's as old as history, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so I think we have to sort of square up to the idea that uh, corporations don't deserve special treatment. They're just groups of people. Mm -hmm. And to the extent to which uh, we're just money focused, which is an old, old problem for humans, right? So mm -hmm. it's sometimes people say money is the root of all evil, but that's not the quote. The no. quote is, for the love of money is the root of all evil, yeah. for the love of. Mm -hmm. It's our relationship to money, not money itself. Money is neutral, but it's how we approach it. And, and so the things people do, like you mentioned, VW or Deutsche Bank or Monsanto, or we see things that corporations do for money that the individuals in those companies would never do. But as a group of people, because there's money and we have that, that shield of, well, you, know, you make up some reason for why it makes sense. We're doing awful stuff. And by the way, money is, is not a real thing. It's a social construct. What's real is that our biosphere is collapsing. The warning signs I see ecologically are, are grotesque and disturbing. Um, we see social issues. We can do better. That's the point here is we can do better and people wanna do better. Those are the two things that need to come together in this story. So I'm excited too for this waking up that's happening. It needs to happen. And if COVID is the thing that causes that to happen and we finally say, oh, this level of corruption is working against us and not for us and we can't just look past it anymore and we can't pretend as if it doesn't exist because my life isn't too impacted by it, I guess, too directly, that's no longer the case. And so, yeah, I wholly support any and all groups that uh, are coming together on this and it's time for us to band together and uh, you know, find the people who believe this way, all the different issues we might care about. I think there's one umbrella under this that we can come together around, which is um, we don't have the luxury anymore of not coming together. We don't, a, a no, no decision is a decision at this point. It's like there's an avalanche coming down a hill, mm -hmm. standing there and not making a decision which way to run is a decision. So that's where I think we, we have to understand the severity, the severity of this situation. Collapse is not an impossibility in this story. I know it's remote in some people's minds or unlikely, but it's not an impossibility because it's all interdependent and we've had defective, corrupt leadership that's been unable to do anything really constructive around this. China is, is, not you go to china totally different situation right they they're building thorium reactors which someday will license from them at great cost i assume they're figuring out how to build electric cars but not big giant tesla roadsters with like awesome horsepower muscle little tiny ones that are probably 50 to 100 times more energy efficient that make a lot of sense they are comporting themselves with a future of scarce resources and figuring out what's best for their country in ways that make sense to me. I don't agree with how they go about it or all of their things, but I am telling you, they at least have plans that make sense against this tapestry of financial and resource issues we're talking about.
we have to take a real a real good look at what's really going on so so that we'll be able to make up our minds to make the right decisions um we i don't know i don't quite understand the role of china i just spoke when we spoke with whitney webb i think i mentioned that uh i had uh, i gave an interview yesterday to peter bregan who is one of the most important psychiatrists in the united states um he's he's the one who is basically responsible for getting rid of lobotomy He's now 85 or 86 years old, but he believes that it's China, uh, which is really the source of all evil in this story. I don't quite agree with that. I know that they're part of the problem uh, and they're also um, one of the many different entities that are trying to divide the spoils of uh, what they have just destroyed. But I don't quite understand. So I do think it's such, a, as you said at the beginning, it's such an such a complica complicated um, system that we're living, and it we must always take a close look. It's 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 really important so that we will be the ones who decide what the Great Reset looks like, looks like, and not them, because they are the ones who brought us where we are right now. Yeah, I think it's also important to maybe understand that um, there's, I mean, what we've seen now, at least, like that there's so many people who are really uh, full of good intentions, you know, and who who really want to do the right thing, and you know, there's um, there's actually only a very few who seem to be, um, you know, pulling the strings somehow, you know, but like what Whitney Webb says that it's this uh, Robert, uh, what was in Catholic, Catholic, you know, who pops up in this situation, pops up here again, and then another the time there and like they're all connected but it seems to be it's 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 a small clique kind of you know so it's also that's why i have a good hopes that w once we have um overcome this kind of system and we have you know like set up a we must make sure that it's not never going to happen again that a few people for their private interests you know can uh, gain that much power again and really overtake a um, system that's meant for everyone um, to their own benefits, you know, that's that we have to be very careful. But I think if we can do that and, um, you know, take get the swarm, you know, like everyone who has, um, you know, who, who, who means well involved, I think um, we have a very good chance of, of go rolling in the right direction, you yeah. know. I, I completely agree. Um, and I was really taken by a book, a set of books, and I interviewed uh, this, the author, Daniel Quinn. He wrote Ishmael and another set called Beyond Civilization. It's a, just a beautiful little set of, of short paragraphs describing what it meant to be in civilizations. And by the way, we've been here before with this idea of a very tiny, tiny elite pulling the strings for their own benefit. And whether it was the Mayans or the Aztecs or any of these other ancient you know, cultures, it's, a, it's kind of been the same thing. And, and what he describes in his book, he said the only way, and again, this is sort of the idea of building a better model, he said the reason some of those civilizations collapsed, like the Mayans, the Aztecs, is that the people lost, the, they were no longer in the thrall of the narrative of the time. So in the Aztecs' time, there were these priests, they had to sacrifice people, they were typically drawn from the poorer families, they put the people on the altars, cut their hearts out, the rains would come, right? And then, of course, the rains didn't come for a period of time, the narrative shattered, and he said the way that those civilizations collapsed usually was not in some big violent overthrow, is that the people walked away. Yeah. They just scattered back into the jungle in, in those times. But 
Um, that's the modern equivalent is people need to walk away. So you start by withdrawing your consent and it's harder now because they have really, they have really good tools. But one of the great sins that Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have, have pulled is to convince us that we're actually isolated and in the minority and we're not. So one of the first things I do is I withdraw my consent to allow those social media outlets, although I'm on them every day because of my business, I don't allow them to control my emotions anymore or to allow me to form an opinion about how, uh, what my reach is, how important my message is, whether I'm being followed, all that, that's just, that's just junk. So withdrawing consent is the most important thing we can do. And, and that's where the elites get their power from is that we consent to give it. So we have to withdraw that consent. And to me, I don't know any other way to do that except to get back to, like your other guest was saying, to get back to communities, yeah. to regions, mm -hmm. to we have to get back to that and start taking responsibility for our own selves. I do that in my town, right? So I bought a place, got a lot, some, uh, some land, and I have cows now and chickens, and you know that's what I'm doing. But I'm doing this in a way so that I'm building the resilience of my town. And I work with other people in town who share that same mindset. And there's quite a few of us. So then once I think other people see enough of us doing it, they come over and they, and they say, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, I have this really beautiful garden. I have this extraordinary place. I prefer to live surrounded by beauty and abundance. And, and so they can be attracted to the positive side of that message. And we hold uh, real, real gatherings. And we talk about real things. You know, I had just had a hundred people here last weekend and it was fabulous. And the number one uh, comment back was, oh my God, it was so relieving. Everybody there, we were having real conversations. You know, that's what we all want. We want to be connected. We want to, we want to have meaning and purpose. And that's the better life that sits out there. Um, not the one that Twitter and Facebook and or is it called Meta now? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a bunch of junk. <laughs> it's just complete crap. <laughs> Listen, I was going to show you this picture because that's what this is all about. You've probably seen this before. I don't know if you can see this. Um, it's about withdrawing consent. Um, I'm going to get a little bit closer. Yeah, closer, please. Can you see this? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's what this is all about. Yeah, exactly. Let them go to hell. We can do, we can play our own thing. That's what they're afraid of. <laughs> they, they're afraid of us understanding this. And that's what's happening right now. Exactly. So this exactly. is a very positive note on which we can end today's session. I like this. Um, we'll be in touch, Chris. This was pure pleasure. I thought this great. was, oh my God, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But this is great because we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. We know what to do. Yep. Yep. So people often say, are you an optimist or, or a pessimist? And I say, I'm neither. I'm an optimistic realist. You have to have the realism yeah. in order to find the optimism. You can't ignore it. And yeah, it just doesn't work. So it begins with that hard work of getting to the reality and going, oh, that's, I wish it was different, but that's what it is. Oh, because now I know what to do, right? 
that's the relief in this story. So yeah. thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. Um, I think people will take a lot of comfort from uh, what you have to tell us. And it shows us the right direction. It shows us that we're, we're on the right track right now, even us. And by the way, it's happening in the US as well. Not just with you, but there's many others. We had a uh, polit an active politician on our uh, session a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Sue Frost. She's on the Board of Supervisors uh, in uh, Sacramento County. And she's uh, telling me that she and a group of others, um, like-minded people, are now about to set up their own health insurance, which is com completely different from what they have right now. It's much less expensive. Mm. As, as it should be. I won't even yeah. tell you what I pay. It's yeah. just... It's just Oh, it's 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 uh, it's like it's like leasing two high end Mercedes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> every month for nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, thanks again. It's been it's been absolutely wonderful. And thank uh, you very hope much. We can do it again. Yeah, we will. And have a have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. So. Now you, you may come. wish people a nice weekend again, a good weekend. Okay, we've come to the end of the session. I was incredible, uh, lots of in it and new stuff. So I just wanted to um, leave my word on donations. We depend on donations to do our work. And uh, so if you want to support us, that is very welcome. We are going to publish the second um, volume of the book, which we've been doing. And there's three video clips. I think the speech of the members of the European Parliament. I'm not sure if it's the German one only or uh, and we see that we are by no way the only people who do there are even some who dare to uh, say this the second uh, clip shows us what where we're headed to if we don't do anything that's one of the Australian members of Parliament who explains to the people that they got to get vaccinated every six months of course he uh, euphemistically says this is something a great achievement and the third clip is interesting because we will talk to that woman ourselves it's astroturfing so Cheryl Atkinson who takes 10 minutes to explain what this is all about and understand um, uh, to do um, as a great product, this is what you buy uh, politics, politicians with, you buy a space in the mainstream, mainstream media, you get all the experts for the expertises, and you buy Wikipedia, manipulate everything, and the poor product that you've got, maybe the vaccination, turns out in something marvelous if the people go along. So we have to understand not only what they tell us and what the truth is we also have to understand why some of us do not really get it that is exactly because of this psycho terror which professor Desmus has explained to us that is due to the tactics like astroturfing i think very very well explained oh.
Right. Uh, I'm very happy that I managed to go through this meeting. Uh, if I get up, you, uh, you'll probably have to carry me home because I can't really uh, straighten up. Well, I hope it'll work out. Okay. I hope that everybody has a nice weekend, a nice uh, Friday afternoon. Yeah. Enjoy your weekend. Auf Wiedersehen. Vielen Dank. Ähm, ja, also das äh, größte Problem, was ich äh, im Zusammenhang mit, mit dieser Covid-Krise tatsächlich sehe, ist, dass ähm, bürgerliche Rechte, Grundrechte immer weiter eingeschränkt werden. Und ähm, mir ist nicht erklärlich, warum die Bürger in den Mitgliedstaaten das mit sich machen lassen. Ähm, ich glaube, ein Erklärungsansatz dafür könnte tatsächlich der sein, das, ähm, und das ist ein großer Nachteil äh, von freien demokratischen Gesellschaften. Sie erreichen irgendwann einen Punkt, an dem sie glauben, Demokratie, Rechtsstaatlichkeit und Freiheit sei irgendwie etwas Gottgegebenes und gäbe es immer und gab es schon immer. Und ähm, man macht sich überhaupt keine Gedanken mehr dafür, äh, darum, dass nein, diese Dinge mussten den Herrschern blutig abgetrotzt werden. Also es ist überhaupt kein Verständnis mehr für den Wert von Freiheit an sich da. Und das sehen wir jetzt auch in, in dieser Krise. Hier werden im Prinzip Grundrechte, also in Deutschland sind die im Grundgesetz verfassungsrechtlich verankert, die werden einfach von den Regierungen wie Privilegien ausgegeben oder wieder zurückgezogen. Und man hat so ein bisschen den Eindruck, die Grundrechte kann eben nur noch in Anspruch nehmen, wer sich wohl verhält. Und da muss ich ganz klar sagen, vor Covid habe ich keine Angst. Wovor ich tatsächlich Angst habe, ist oder sind Regierungen, die eben solche Krisen ausnutzen, um bürgerliche Freiheitsrechte einzuschränken und sie eben wie Privilegien gewähren oder nicht gewähren zu können. Und das muss aufhören. Dafür stehen wir in Europa eigentlich Freiheit, Demokratie und Rechtsstaatlichkeit. Und unter keiner äh, vorgeschobenen Grund soll, kann und darf das jemals von einer Regierung eingeschränkt werden. Und das ist das große Problem. Und da müssen wir ran und das müssen wir den Europäern auch klar machen, dass sie das nicht länger mit sich machen lassen. You will have to be vaccinated, because the, the, the virus doesn't much care what you're going shopping for. It just doesn't. And you will, you will spread it. Uh, you will make the job of our nurses harder. And if you're choosing to not be vaccinated, well, that is the wrong choice to make. I, I, I hope, and we'll play our part in this, like a month before your six months is up, uh, then uh, you will get a message and your vaccination certificate, the thing that gets you the green tick, you'll be prompted to go and book, uh, to go and book a uh, time to go and have your booster shot. There may be state clinics in that, or it might be all done through GPs and pharmacy. That hasn't been worked, worked through yet. We're happy to play our part, though. Uh, so it'll be about the maintenance of your vaccination status. So, consider this fictitious example that's inspired by real life. Say you're watching the news and you see a story about a new study on the cholesterol-lowering drug called Colextra. The study says Colextra is so effective that doctors should consider prescribing it to adults and even children who don't yet have high cholesterol. Is it too good to be true? You're smart, you decide to do some of your own research. 
You do a Google search, you consult social media, Facebook and Twitter, you look at Wikipedia, WebMD, a nonprofit website, and you read the original study in a peer-reviewed published medical journal. It all confirms how effective Colextra is. You do run across a few negative comments and a potential link to cancer, but you dismiss that because medical experts call the cancer link a myth and say that those who think there is a link there are quacks and cranks and nuts. Finally, you, you learned that your own doctor recently attended a medical seminar. The lecture that he attended confirmed how effective Colextra is, so he sends you off with some free samples and a prescription. You've really done your homework. But what if all isn't as it seems? What if the reality you found was false? A carefully constructed narrative by unseen special interests designed to manipulate your opinion. A Truman Show-esque alternate reality all around you. Complacency in the news media combined with incredibly powerful propaganda and publicity forces mean we sometimes get little of the truth. Special interests have unlimited time and money to figure out new ways to spin us while cloaking their role. Surreptitious astroturf methods are now more important to these interests than traditional lobbying of Congress. There's an entire industry built around it in Washington. What is astroturf? It's a perversion of grassroots, as in fake grassroots. Astroturf is when political, corporate, or other special interests disguise themselves and publish blogs, start Facebook and Twitter accounts, publish ads, letters to the editor, or simply post comments online to try to fool you into thinking an independent or grassroots movement is speaking. The whole point of AstroTurf is to try to give the impression there's widespread support for or against an agenda when there's not. AstroTurf seeks to manipulate you into changing your opinion by making you feel as if you're an outlier when you're not. One example is the Washington Redskins name. Without taking a position on the controversy, if you simply were looking at news media coverage over the course of the past year, or looking at social media, you'd probably have to conclude that most Americans find that name offensive and think it ought to be changed. But what if I told you 71% of Americans say the name should not be changed? That's more than two-thirds. AstroTurfers seek to controversialize those who disagree with them. They attack news organizations that publish stories they don't like, whistleblowers who tell the truth, politicians who dare to ask the tough questions, and journalists who have the audacity to report on all of it. Sometimes astroturfers simply shove intentionally so much confusing and conflicting information into the mix that you're left to throw up your hands and disregard all of it, including the truth. Drown out a link between a medicine and a harmful side effect, say vaccines and autism, by throwing a bunch of conflicting paid-for studies, surveys, and experts into the mix, confusing the truth beyond recognition. And then there's Wikipedia. AstroTurf's dream come true. Billed as the free encyclopedia that anyone can edit, the reality can't be more different. Anonymous Wikipedia editors control and co-opt pages on behalf of special interests. They forbid and reverse edits that go against their agenda. They skew and delete information in blatant violation of Wikipedia's own established policies with impunity, always superior to the poor schlubs who actually believe anyone could edit Wikipedia, only to discover they're barred from correcting even the simplest factual inaccuracies. 
Try adding a footnoted fact or correcting a fact error on one of these monitored Wikipedia pages and, pages and poof, sometimes within a matter of seconds, you'll find your edit is reversed. In 2012, famed author Philip Roth tried to correct a major fact error about the inspiration behind one of his book characters cited on a Wikipedia page. But no matter how hard he tried, Wikipedia's editors wouldn't allow it. They kept reverting the edits back to the false information. When Roth finally reached a person at Wikipedia, which was no easy task, and tried to find out what was going wrong, they told him he simply was not considered a credible source on himself. <laughs> a few weeks later, there was a huge scandal when Wikipedia officials got caught offering a PR service that skewed and edit information on behalf of paid, publicity-seeking clients in utter opposition to Wikipedia's supposed policies. All of this may be why, when a medical study looked at medical conditions described on Wikipedia pages and compared it to actual peer-reviewed published research, Wikipedia contradicted medical research 90% of the time. You may never fully trust what you read on Wikipedia again, nor should you. Let's now go back to that fictitious Colextra example and all the research you did. It turns out the Facebook and Twitter accounts you found that were so positive were actually written by paid professionals hired by the drug company to promote the drug. The Wikipedia page had been monitored by an agenda editor also paid by the drug company. The drug company also arranged to optimize Google search engine results, so it was no accident that you stumbled across that positive nonprofit that had all those positive comments. The nonprofit was, of course, secretly founded and funded by the drug company. The drug company also financed that positive study and used its power of editorial control to omit any mention of, of cancer as a possible side effect. Once more, each and every doctor who publicly touted Colextra or called the cancer link a myth or ridiculed critics as paranoid cranks and quacks or served on the government advisory board that approved the drug, each of those doctors is actually a paid consultant for the drug company. As for your own doctor, the medical lecture he attended that had all those positive evaluations was, in fact, like many continuing medical education classes, sponsored by the drug company. And when the news reported on that positive study, it didn't mention any of that. I have tons of personal examples from real life. A couple of years ago, CBS News asked me to look into a story about a study coming out from the nonprofit National Sleep Foundation. Supposedly, this press release coming out said, the study concluded we are a nation with an epidemic of sleeplessness and we don't even know it, and we should all go ask our doctors about it. A couple of things struck me about that. First, I recognized the phrase, ask your doctor, as a catchphrase promoted by the pharmaceutical industry. They know that if they can get your foot through the door of the doctor's office to mention a malady, you're very likely to be prescribed the latest drug that's marketed. Second, I wondered how serious an epidemic of sleeplessness could really be if we don't even know that we have it. Right? It didn't take long for me to do a little research and discover that the National Sleep Foundation nonprofit and the study, which was actually a survey, not a study, were sponsored in part by a new drug that was about to be launched onto the market called Lunesta, a sleeping pill. I reported the study as CBS News asked, but of course I disclosed the sponsorship behind the nonprofit and the survey so that viewers could weigh the information accordingly. All the other news media reported the same survey directly off the press release as written without digging past the superficial. It later became an example written up in the Columbia Journalism Review 
which quite accurately reported that only we at CBS News had bothered to do a little bit of research and disclose the conflict of interest behind this widely reported survey. So now you may be thinking, what can I do? I thought I'd done my research. What chance do I have separating fact from fiction, especially if seasoned journalists with years of experience can be so easily fooled? Well, I have a few strategies that I can tell you about to help you recognize signs of propaganda and astroturf. Once you start to know what to look for, you'll begin to recognize it everywhere. First, hallmarks of astroturf include use of inflammatory language such as crank, quack, nutty, lies, paranoid, pseudo, and conspiracy. Astroturfers often claim to debunk myths that aren't myths at all. Use of the charged language tests well. People hear something's a myth, maybe they find it on Snopes, and they instantly declare themselves too smart to fall for it. But what if the whole notion of the myth is itself a myth and you and Snopes fell for that? <laughs> Beware when interests attack an issue by controversializing or attacking the people, personalities, and organizations surrounding it rather than addressing the facts. That could be AstroTurf. And most of all, AstroTurfers tend to reserve all of their public skepticism for those exposing wrongdoing rather than the wrongdoers. In other words, instead of questioning authority, they question those who question authority. You might start to see things a little more clearly. It's kind of like taking off your glasses and wiping them and putting them back on and realizing for the first time how foggy they've been all along. I can't resolve these issues, but I hope that I've given you some information that will at least motivate you to take off your glasses and wipe them and become a wiser consumer of information in an increasingly artificial paid-for reality. Thank you.